And let me pull this phone over here a little bit closer, and let's just get started. I punch that button and say good morning, Helen. Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. Great. Um, would you go over the treatment for oak wilt one more time, please? Okay. Oak wilt is a vascular fungus disease. It's important first that you understand how it works and how it spreads. Uh, and the way it does damage to your trees, it literally plugs up the vessels that take the, the called xylem tissue, the vessels that take the water from the root system up to the top of the tree. Um, it, can, it spreads two different ways. It spreads from uh, when a wound on the tree is infected with a spore from a red oak, not a live oak, but a red oak that has died of oak wilt, that gets transferred over by an insect, or it can be transferred where the roots of the live oak trees are interconnected. One tree has oak wilt, and this fungus moves through the root system <clears throat> into the other trees that surround it. The cornmeal grows a beneficial fungus called trichoderma, which attacks and actually destroys the fungus that causes the oak wilt disease. So our challenge is getting the, the good fungus, the trichoderma, into the tree that, that has the oak wilt or that we want to prevent from getting the oak wilt. So in the past, what we used to do, and it still works, is take whole ground cornmeal and spread out around the root zone, out all around the outer portion of the root zone of the trees, and just water it in real well. Now, what the arborists have found in, in the past couple of years is that you accomplish <clears throat> excuse me, the same thing with a lot less cornmeal if you simply take some five-gallon buckets, put about a cup of cornmeal per five-gallon bucket of water, and just let it soak overnight, and then just pour that water. Just tump those buckets over, and in this case, fairly close to the trunk, usually within 10 feet of the trunk, instead of going all the way out to the drip line, means we need a lot less liquid, but they're telling us that that's where the tree actually takes up the majority of its liquid. So um, you can do this to control oak wilt, even eliminate oak wilt in a tree that already has oak wilt. You can also prevent other trees from getting oak wilt by simply taking uh, taking your five-gallon buckets, about a cup of cornmeal in each bucket, fill that bucket with water, let it soak for 12 to 24 hours, even up to 36 hours. Get kind of smelly if you left it much beyond that, and simply Pour this water kind of just out over the ground within uh, 10 or 15 feet of the trunk of the tree. Uh, the tree takes it up. The trichoderma fungus goes to work attacking the oak wilt fungus. And if the trees aren't too far gone, if they haven't lost, uh, they're saying more than 50% of the foliage, but I'm seeing trees that are even worse off than that have, that have actually survived and grown out of it. But uh, uh, this will control the oak wilt. If you have a tree with oak wilt, I be, would be doing this about every 30 to 45 days for about six months. If okay. you're just trying trying to prevent a tree from getting oak wilt, say your neighbors have some oak wilt, you've got nice oak trees in your yard, you want to be sure they don't get oak wilt. It seems like treating with cornmeal about every six months is enough to stop the disease from spreading. Okay. 
Thank you. There's more information than you asked for, but did I I answer your question and and, uh, give you a little more information on it? Well, I I appreciate it because I do have oak wilt, and I'm trying (laughs) to have the cornmeal ready. I have my tree is a pretty good size and diameter. Mm-hmm. Would about five buckets at a time be enough? Tell me approximately how big in diameter the trunk is. Oh, I would say it. it I haven't measured it, but it's getting close to being thirty six inches. Oh yeah, yeah. I would probably do four or five buckets at a time. And if you know that it has oak wilt again, I'd be doing this about every thirty days. Considering that you're only using a cup of whole ground cornmeal per five-gallon bucket, um, your cornmeal is going to go a long way. It's going to be a whole lot more economical. And, you know, if you if you go spreading the dry cornmeal around, the birds want to go after it, the raccoons want to go after it. You may not have deer in your yard, but uh, uh, where you are using the liquid, you're avoiding all those problems, and it seems to be just as effective in treating it. I would Say that you might want to take a picture of the tree as it is so that you can look back a year from now or two years from now or five years from now and kind of chart the progress with the uh, uh, with the cornmeal taking care of the oak wilt problem. Now, it's still important on all red oaks, all live oaks, so the only two oaks that we're worried about, but on those trees it is still important that we paint, that we seal any wound uh, pruning wound or anything like that on the tree to the roots or to the top. So we don't want to introduce any more oak wilt into the tree, oh. but the uh, the trichoderma, I'd, I'd always like to make the point that the cornmeal is not the magic. It's the trichoderma fungus which grows on the cornmeal that's the magic. But um, um, that, you know, it, it certainly should take care of the disease for you. And uh, soaking it, the cornmeal overnight is is long enough. Yes, uh, twelve to twenty four hours. I mean, don't don't go to bed at midnight and get up at six a.m. and go dump it on the tree. Give it a good twelve hours to soak. But uh, you know, if you just do it in the afternoon, pour it around the next morning, you'll be in good shape. Uh, okay, that's what I I needed to know. Uh, may I ask one another? Yes, question? ma'am. Uh, how do I know if I have brown? I have brown spots in my yard. Is that that brown? Uh, not probably not brown patch fungus because brown patch fungus, which would be controlled by the cornmeal too, by the way. But brown oh. patch fungus shows up when we have uh, cool nights and warm days, and uh, unless I'm missing out on something, we haven't had any cool nights any time recently. So brown areas in the grass could be grubworm damage, could be chinch bug damage, or I hate to say it, but frequently if there's smaller spots, it's just dog urine on a hot afternoon are enough Uh to create some brown spots. So uh, fertilize water when it does cool off, maybe a little compost over the areas that are affected, but uh, uh, that does not sound like brown patch fungus. Uh, uh, I removed the uh, plants from around the roots of my oak tree. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, do I need to put compost over those roots now? Not really. Uh It's perfectly normal for a big old live oak tree to have roots right up on the surface of the ground it's part of just you know the roots start out below the surface of the ground then as the root grows it grows as much upward as it does downward and we end up with big old roots on the top of the ground but that is perfectly normal and it's actually can be quite beautiful the big old root flares that these trees form and, uh, of course, don't ever let anything pile up around the trunk. You want to see that root flare exposed. But um, if you want to put some mulch around, 
you'll cool the soil a little bit, but tree this big, it's not going to make any difference, and it's certainly not necessary. Oh, okay. Well, I, I just wonder because the roots are probably 12 inches above <laughs> the ground. If you've got a 30-inch caliper oak tree, I would expect the roots to be pretty massive, too. It's a tree certainly worth saving, Helen. Okay, thank you. And, yes. Bob, I, I certainly enjoy listening to you. Well, I appreciate it. Oh, and ho- hope you have a wonderful weekend. And hope we get some cool weather for Victoria and the Hill Country and all of Texas sometime for too long. It would certainly be nice. <laughs> yes, it would, Helen. Thank you so much. And let me move on. We've got Clint and Kay as my next two callers. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. How about you this morning? Pretty good. Got a question for you. Um, got a huge, I believe, what's called a red oak tree, probably mm-hmm. about pushing two foot in diameter. Okay. And taller, taller than the telephone pole. I want to sink a well fairly close to it and use the shade for the pump house. Uh huh. How far away does that well should go away from that tree? Wouldn't hurt the tree. Um, but golly, I don't think there's really any uh real concern i probably would stay i don't know 15 20 feet away from it but there's not likely to be you're not going to damage the roots that much you knew do need to be sure that your driller if he is using a drilling mud sometimes he they put some caustic chemicals into the the fluid that they're pumping down into the bore as they're drilling the well so be sure that anything um, that is, you know, that is vented off of that, so to speak, you know, gets pumped, you know, some distance away from the tree. I mean, they, they can put a, a big old hose line on there and, and take that fluid off uh, some distance away. But as far as damage to the tree, as long as they're not interfering with the limbs, when they set up the mast, I think is what they call that top portion on the drilling rig. If you're, if you're 15, 20 feet away from the tree, there's not going to be an issue there. That drilling fluid, do they retake it with them, or they just leave it there on the site when they're finished? Uh, for the most part, it it get you know it's getting mixed in with the soil and everything else. There's not really a practical way to recapture it, but uh, they they flush a good deal out after they uh, you know after they finish their drilling, after they set their casing, after they do the other things that they need to do. They generally pump the well for a while just to take out anything that may have gotten down into the water-bearing strata, and, and just be sure they're pumping that water somewhere other than towards your oak tree. Oak tree, okay. Now on the oak trees, uh, live, uh, live oak, red oak, and pecan trees, how far deep do they sink their roots for water? Well, a lot of that is a great question. A lot of that depends on the soil type. Um, you know, of where I am in the old rocky Hill country, those roots are probably all up in the top 8 to 10 feet. Uh, where you are down in a little bit, not not quite such rocky soil uh, in the Divine area, those roots could potentially go 50, 60 feet deep. Okay, that's what I was kind of thinking. Uh, my present well, the, the static level is like 25 feet or so, and all <laughs> my trees are doing good. Yeah. Uh, even during the droughts. They were all putting new groves and looking healthy, so I figured they all top, tap that groundwater and right. looking good. Right. Now, you know that uh, that when they drill your well, though, of course, they're going to go substantially deeper than that. Uh, you'll have to ask your driller. They're probably going to go down 
80, 90 feet because, you know, they want to have a, a sufficient area right around the, um, the, the bore of the well, so to speak, so that uh, uh, it's not just turning your pump on and instantly emptying all of that water out. But uh, uh, you're very fortunate. I have a very shallow well for the hill country. My well is only about maybe 125 feet deep. There are a lot of neighbors around me go down to a deeper aquifer that may be as much as a 1,000 feet deep. So I know a lot of people would be pretty jealous if they could hit good water at 25 feet. So uh, you uh, <laughs> use it responsibly and enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Good deal. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, it's my pleasure, Clint. I appreciate the call, and uh, we'll talk again, I'm sure. Uh, next up, and this time we go over Shiner Way. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um. I was just, I just have a situation I'm, I'm curious about. Um, I live here. My house is on the street, and I have 18 acres of pasture behind it. Mm-hmm. And um, I've lived here over 45 years and walked out in the pasture and done all kind of things out there. And never, ever can I remember getting a red bug until this year. Okay. And... I mean, even this week I was out there, I had soaked some cornmeal overnight, and mm-hmm. I was drove out there. It was in the back of the truck, and I had all these five-gallon buckets and was pouring it around and ended up with a lot of red bug bites. Yeah. And, and evidently, I know they bothered me in the past from different properties. Mm-hmm. They would be, you know, itching and welts, but now... They form blisters, and one of the blisters is like as big as a dime, and I still have it. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, like re-exposing the root flares, do, are there red bugs out there during the winter? Can I do my work out there during the winter? Or you can what? certainly, you can certainly do it during the cooler season. Um, red bugs are what people call chiggers. Um, they are they're not out there in cold weather and they're rarely out there in super hot super dry weather the time we normally see them are on pasture grasses so roughly from april through june or july until we get into really hot weather you might ask dermatologist friend ask your doctor because there are a number of different things that can you know bite your legs um other than the than the red bugs typically typically red bugs uh like an area where you know where your skin is compressed fairly tightly they love to get up around the you know the waistband of your underwear down around your socks and things like that where it's a little tighter against the skin if there are bites up and down your legs overall it may not be red bugs it may be midges it may be you know some other different creatures that uh you certainly do have over in that area what i do when i'm working outside um i and and if i'm wearing jeans which if i'm out cutting cedar or brush or something like that yeah i'm going to be you know protecting myself i at least go from my ankles up midway on my shins with an insect repellent i happen to use one called murphy's natural i do not like deet i do not approve of the use of deet 
But um, I, I find that if I, and if I'm wearing shorts, which I am if I'm not in uh, any real heavy activity, I'll pretty much uh, spray my legs with it. And I never get bitten by anything where I've used this. I have to reply it every, uh, reapply it every few hours. And different products work well for different people, but there's one called No Mosquitoes, and anything that's mosquito-repelling is probably going to also be very repellent. Uh, to chiggers, red bugs, other things that want to go after you. So rather than let the blasted little mites and bugs interrupt what you want to do, I would just get a good non-deet repellent and just when you get dressed in the morning, just, you know, rub it waist down on your legs. And I doubt that you'll ever see a bite again, Kay. <laughs> well, I did have on rubber boots and I did spray with something from uh, my natural health clinic but I only sprayed my boots and up to my knees, yep. and that part was fine. But it, they came up, I guess, as far as my hips. Yeah. And um, I guess I was um, curious why I've never had them in all those years until this year. Well, they get spread around by small furry creatures and transport mm. around on other things, and they love a moist year, and <laughs> it's hard to remember, but back from about March through about June, we were quite moist pretty much throughout a lot of Texas, and there are a lot of unwelcome creatures like that that have certainly been more, more prolific this year because we did have okay. such a good wet spring and early summer. But um, the other thing I would tell you to do is, uh, if you don't already have one, uh, plant a plant or two of comfrey. Uh, some people mm-hmm. grow it in a pot. Some people grow it in the ground. But fire ant bites, chigger bites, mosquito bites, that stuff is just almost magic. You take uh, the leaves or the stem of the leaf and squeeze a little bit of that juice out and just rub it over the area where you've been bitten. And in my experience, uh, in a painful sting like a wasp or a scorpion, it takes most of the pain out very, very quickly. In the case of a fire ant bite, you never get those little pustules forming, and it takes the itch away within a matter of minutes. So, um, And Comfrey is a great healer. It's, it does a better job than anything the dermatologist can do, and the dermatologist will tell you this against things like brown recluse bites. Uh, my mm. friend Dan Kirby, vet, had a recluse bite on his wrist. He goes to the guy that I think is the best dermatologist in South Texas, and... Uh, um, Greg did what they could. They basically remove a bunch of tissue, put antibiotic and things on it. And he told him, he said, Dan, you know, this is basically everything we can do was not healing well. Um, I got him some comfrey and would just literally drop a few leaves by the clinic every day or two. And that wound had healed without a scar within two or three weeks. So comfrey is really magic when it comes to dealing with uh, serious and minor uh, insect problems alike, so I would I would sure encourage you to uh, plant a little patch of comfrey somewhere in a spot in the garden, so you'll have that available to get sure into this will. stuff in the future. That sounds good. Thank you. Your your health food store may actually have comfrey in the form of a, a salve combined with lanolin or something like that. Um, forgotten who I was talking to, uh, but I think they were up in Colorado and gotten you know some serious skin issues, and at a uh, health food store up there. They found comfrey compounded in an in an ointment type of thing. We're just amazed at how it took care of the issues. So comfrey is really magical stuff. But best not to get bitten. But if it does happen, comfrey is a real good way to minimize the the itch and the pain. And in the case of things like spider bites, the rather serious necrotic issues it can uh, contribute to. 
Okay, very good. I have one other question. Okay. What kind of roots does a pine tree have? Do they go very deep? No. Pine tree roots are pretty mm. shallow. Uh, again, your soil type determines it to some extent, but uh, I see giant pine trees blown over where the roots are a little more than five or six feet deep at the very most. Okay. All right. You've answered all my questions. Thank well, you very much. I enjoy your of, show. Stay out of the red bugs, and uh, we'll <laughs> talk again soon. I appreciate it. And let all me right. move on here and uh, talk to John. Good morning, John. Good morning. Morning, sir. I got a question for you about uh, water wells. Uh, yes, sir. I'm, I'm down here, and uh, my water's pretty salty. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was wondering uh, if I was to, you know, water my trees with it or my my lawn right now mm-hmm. uh, i've got i've got city water as well as a well if i was going to be end up doing any permanent damage putting all the salt uh and and you know that it's sodium is the you've got a pretty high tds total dissolved solids down there but uh yes. okay so and it is sodium is the is the thing yes. you know that's a really good question and some plants are much more tolerant of salt than others I mean, you look at things like St. Augustine, you look at flowers like lantana, you look at trees like live oak. These things grow in very, very high salt conditions. Um, And yet some of your more tender plants, some of your vegetable plants, uh, the salt can be a real issue to it. You can get a sodium burn. So um, you the question is yes and no. Uh, Some plants may be affected. Other plants will be totally unaffected. But how much issue you're going to have with salt is really going to depend on what sorts of things you're growing. Well, uh, mainly uh, I'm not real worried about the lawn so much uh, as uh, my trees, like my mesquite trees. No, uh, not going to be an issue with mesquites. Okay, and elm trees? Elm trees depends on which elm, but, you know, the the really important thing here uh, to me is to really keep up the microbial life of the soil because the the microbes that we talk about the bacteria the fungi some of the other things that are in healthy soil really do a lot to change the sodium into compounds that are not harmful to the tree now if you were sitting there using uh you know a 201010 fertilizer or something like that that's messing up the soil life your elm trees would be a whole lot more likely to be negatively impacted by the sodium level. Good, healthy, organic soil, getting some organic material built up with molasses and compost and things like that, those are going to greatly lessen any damage that you might see from the sodium. John, what is your current source of water? What are you watering these trees and things with now? Well, uh, I was using uh, uh, the city water. Uh, okay. You know, the le- we got you know the lakes full and and uh, you know just to be sure until I got a hold of you and I'm a big big believer in the Medina and sure. use a lot of it out here agriculturally even right. and, uh, that's why I was wondering if I could you know maybe offset offset the salt damage with uh, every couple of months with Medina and some uh, Super Thrive even you know I think you would would take care of everything you need to Medina actually uses uh, you know some of those same micro products some of them in a little bit different form but cleaning up you know old well sites and things like that where nothing's grown for years they go in with uh, uh some of their it's kind of like an enhanced uh, soil activator 
Uh, and gosh, they've got to return these things to agricultural production in a very brief period of time. So uh, though that is one thing I would sure suggest. Medina would be great. Asking, adding a little bit of extra molasses to it would also be very good. And probably most important is just be sure you're not screwing up your microbial life with, uh, you know, the high salt fertilizers and things like that. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think you're going to have any problem. Again, uh, if you have house plants, if you grow orchids like I do or something like that, uh, you may very well, you may already have this, uh, get an RO system for your drinking water, and you can always use some of the surplus from that uh, for house plants and things like that. But most everything in your landscape uh, should not have a problem at all. When you go to the coast, look around, whether it's Port Aransas or Victoria or wherever, whatever else, look around at all the plants that are growing well down there, and it's a very, very wide palette that is very salt tolerant. And just if you plant flowers, if you plant shrubs, if you're uh, you know, planting anything like that, you probably want to stay w- away from some of the things that are uh, a little more salt sensitive, like begonias and pentas and things like that, and go with more salt tolerant vincas and uh, things like that. So you will you will want to pay a little bit of attention to what you plant, but I am I'm I'm not concerned for your existing vegetation as long as you don't have anything super salt sensitive. All right, I got uh, one other thing on those mesquite trees. I, this year I, I planted them all from seed uh-huh. ten twelve years ago, and they're getting to be like you know twenty feet tall and really big, but this year, I've had so many of them that they're splitting. Mm-hmm. They're splitting and, uh, you know, falling off, and I've got to cut them. And, you know, what was once a, you know, nice, pretty-shaped uh, canopy in a tree, now, <laughs> you know, it's starting to just <laughs> look know, a little straggly. Down at the base and fall on, falling off. Yeah, if you want a majestic uh, tree, plant an oak tree instead of a mesquite tree because they're just sort of the ugly sister you know, of the tree world. What happens, and you had a pretty wet spring and early summer down there, didn't you? Yes, we did. And what happens is those trees are taking up water so quickly that, you know, the the bark, the outer layer of the bark, as well as the inner layer, just can't expand to keep up with how fast that trunk is growing, and you end up with, you know, a lot of splits in, you know, in the trees. Uh, some pecan growers do this intentionally. They'll take a knife and actually split the bark going up the trunk because it allows the trunk to develop and, and uh, grow in diameter more quickly. But it's just trying. Somebody was telling me last week, and I wasn't aware of this, that there was actually a contest of sorts years ago, and they were attempting to find some mesquites that made more upright more stately trees and i understand there's at least one nursery now selling something they call an upright mesquite i'm not real impressed with that but unfortunately you've just chosen the wrong tree if you really want to make it a big stately majestic tree that's what we need live oaks and pecans and things for so uh your mesquite's just doing its natural thing and mother nature didn't help it with all the moisture this spring yeah, I've, I've noticed that even even in the middle of a of a limb, there's like sap coming out, mm-hmm. you know, away from any other branches. Well, there's they they get actually a bacterial infection along with other things that sometimes cause that oozy drippy stuff. But uh, 
uh, that's just kind of the world of mesquites. I mean, mesquite will grow, as you can see, all around you where almost nothing else will. But it's uh, nobody, It's not going to win any beauty contest. No, no, they won't. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm also a believer in the, uh, after I prune them, I end up having to put the, the latex paint on mm-hmm. the wounds. Yeah. Uh, Keep where those dripping. were splitting, I had so many insects. Insects yeah. were attracted to it. And I know you always said that, you know, they, they go to the trees that are stressed. Right. And uh, ever since I put the latex paint on the wounds, the insects have disappeared. You're doing it exactly right. Uh, one thing, one other thing I would tell you about uh, salt damage, back to that subject, the way it will show up if things are suffering from uh, too high a sodium layer level, um, you'll have the tips of the leaves will brown, and sometimes the margins, the edges of the leaves will brown. If you start seeing a lot of that, then you do have some, uh, then you have some issues with too much sodium. But most of your trees, I don't think it's going to be a problem in the world. All right. Well, good deal. I appreciate it, Bob. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, and uh, good luck on your well. Be sure you get a good driller and follow all the appropriate regs. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Well, let me tell you one other thing, and I don't know your aquifers there as well as I know the Hill Country aquifers, but um, you might ask your driller if there is if there are multiple layers of water. I know, for instance, so... Uh, you know, parts of Kendall County, we can go down through three or four different aquifers. If he tells you that there is better water and a deeper uh, section of the aquifer or separate aquifer, it if you're really concerned, it might be worth casing through the first level of water and drawing your water from deeper down might give you a better quality water. Like I say, I do not know a whole lot about uh, aquifers and water in your area. We have places in the hill country where we actually require people drilling a well to case through the first aquifer because it may be something like the aquifer that feeds the uh, uh, the Cibolo Creek up there. We don't want to see a lot of water being pulled out for ag use, which is going to reduce the flow in that aquifer. So if there is better water deeper, uh, you're looking at slightly more expense, but as long as you're doing it at the time you're drilling your well, it's not a real big deal. But if your driller really knows his stuff, and I'm sure they do, uh, if there's better water deep, you can always case down through uh, the upper layers where you're getting your, your saltier concentrations. Uh, or by the same token, if the water's worse down deep, then uh, uh, you want to be sure you're not drilling your main bore too deep so that you're staying out of the really bad water. But that's something a good well driller, a good well technician will know that I have no idea about. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll sure uh, ask him about that. Very good. Well, you have a great weekend, and I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. Thank you, John. <laughs> Bye. All right, Jack is going to be up next, and again, a few lines open. A little later in the show, quite often the it's just you're fighting and fighting and fighting, trying to find an open line because they fill up so quickly. Right now, three open lines. Uh, grab on them, probably be yours, 210-599-5555. While I say good morning, Jack. Good morning. Morning, sir. I have a problem with my pecan tree. I've been here 35 years, and for the first time I'm finding... Uh, rotten pecans. Okay. Now, now, what I have is a squirrel who's digging these up, <laughs> and I have a rescue dog I've had about a year, and he's fighting the squirrel over these pecans. That sounds like a typical thing. Yep. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, 
I think what you're looking at, and, and this pecan has always produced good quality pecans before. Yes, it has, huh? When we have a spring as wet as this one was, and when the rain comes at uh, an inopportune time as the uh, pecans are developing, you frequently, some varieties of trees are more susceptible than others, but you frequently get what is called a pecan scab fungus shows up on the outer, that green husk that surrounds the nuts. You'll start seeing black areas on it, and the nuts inside just don't develop properly. A lot of the nut meat inside of the nut itself will be discolored. And since this tree has given you good nuts for a lot of years, I think it is probably just weather-related, and I'm not going to you know, make any forecast as the next spring's weather, but let's just say you know, a very moist spring is not the most common meteorological situation here so i doubt that there's anything you really can or should be doing about this and the dog and the squirrel just have to fight it out for the bad pecans but uh it it is probably pecan scab fungus and it is probably just weather related uh if you're really concerned you could spray with a natural fungicide of some sort uh shortly after the Oh, the little female pecans and nutlets, as they're called, formed. Uh, you could be spraying with a fungicide, but I doubt if it's necessary. I think this is almost certainly just strictly weather-related. All right. Well, that's good. That, that's what I was worried about. Well, find something else to worry about. There are plenty of other things in this world today to worry about, but uh, I think your pecan will be back to its normal good nut production. Uh, I'd rather see the squirrels and the dog fighting over good pecans and rotten pecans anytime. Okay, thank you, Bob. <laughs> You're sure welcome. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Okay, bye. Good morning, Diane. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning. How are you this fine day? I'm good. I heard the call for calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people just, I uh, think, a little slower getting up. I'm sure by the 7 or 8 o'clock hour, you'll be fighting busy signals all the time. But uh, everybody's just, uh, I guess, uh, recovering from the heat of the past few days. So what's going on in your world? So I'm I'm asking a preemptive question. Okay. Because I know now isn't the time to do it. But I have a fig tree that um, do I want to trim it because I don't want it to get so tall I can't reach the figs. Right. Um. So when I trim it, then do the figs next year grow on the old wood or the new wood? It is sort of a combination. Um. You, When you trim it, your first crop of figs, and most figs produce more than one crop of fruit per year. In fact, some of them, uh, it's almost just a continuous production through the warm weather. But um, your first and heavy crop will be on the old wood that is left behind. But that new growth that comes out by mid to late summer will probably be producing figs as well. Okay, so right now the the one limb that's really tall has lots of figs on it Mm -hmm. so when those figs are gone then i trim it then or i trim it in the in the winter or when's the best time well the thing that you want to watch on all plants but especially on figs is that when you trim it's going to create a stimulate a burst of new growth and you want that to have time to harden off a bit before our potential really cold weather period, which is usually mid-December through early February, you don't want to have a bunch of new growth that hasn't hardened off. So if you're watering like crazy on that fig, which is going to, what is what it's going to take to ripen those figs, um, as soon as you've done your harvest, 
If it's before, let's say, September 15th, yeah, go ahead and whack it back then. I would not cut it after that time because of the potential for getting, you know, stimulating new growth. If you're not able to cut it back by then, early spring, just before the spring growth normally starts, which is typically late February, that would be the time you'd be totally safe to doing your pruning. But okay. this tall limb, if you want to get it out of the way, as soon as the birds have stolen all the figs, I mean, I'm sorry, as soon as you pick all these figs <laughs> and enjoy them, you can go ahead and cut it back then as long as it's not too far into the fall. Yeah, it's amazing how they know which ones are perfectly ripe. Yeah. I I share about three a day. <laughs> it's, a, it's a small tree, so yeah. it's not, you know. Okay, and so then I also should leave the lower limbs. I wouldn't, you know, get carried away with pruning, uh, not because it's hard on the plant. I mean, figs, you know, some years will freeze back, and then they come back out just gangbusters. So you could prune heavily if you want to, but you're really going to impact your fig production. So I'm going to pretty much uh, stay away from the lower limbs so that I know that I'm going to get plenty of figs. And then, you know, over time, just selectively, okay, this spring I'm going to really reduce the north side of the tree. Next spring I'm going to do the south side and so on and so on. Just be selective. Take out the things that are really getting far enough to be in the way and leave the others so that you'll have plenty of mature wood for fruit production. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Bob, and you have a great day. And you do the same. And uh, was, wasn't that an interesting article on... Uh, problems from so-called compostable food materials i'm I'm talking to a restaurant about it today very good because <laughs> i just like oh my gosh everything is like no good deed goes unpunished isn't that the darn <laughs> truth that just i think it's important that we we remember that there is a big difference between com- compostable and organic because compostable apparently does not always mean really good for the garden so uh and and you can thank uh you know, our meteorologist friend David Vaughn for passing that along. Not meteorologist, but the arborist friend David Vaughn for passing that along. So it's fun having all you watchdogs out there to pick up on all the things that I don't get around to seeing. So I know you'd be interested in that. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing, and thanks for all your all the work you do with us on the radio. And likewise with you and everything you're doing, Diane. Best of luck with everything. I look forward to our next visit. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, going to be James and Pat and Mary, and James is up first. Good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey, listen, as uh, I uh, hopped into the truck to head to work this morning, I heard the conversation of a lady with the uh, cornmeal and the oak wilt right. uh, preventative yeah. or cure and or. I got a situation here. I live... Uh, I live southeast of Lytle and uh, in Sand Country, and in my area, my property, in my immediate area, it's it's uh, live oak, blackjack oak, and post oak. Right. And and in the past, I'm going to say about 15 years, I've witnessed it twice for the second time this spring. I had a tree which I believe was a blackjack. Um, I'm having a hard time to distinguish between the blackjack and the post by mm-hmm. the leaves. But uh, that being said. I had a tree leaf out this spring, healthy and everything, and just overnight uh, it just browned and died. And, you know, the leaves are on it, but the tree is gone. Right. And I don't know that I have oak wilt in the area. You don't. So you don't. You I, don't uh, because the post oak, blackjack oak, um, those oaks are in a different family of oak trees that do not get oak wilt. 
Uh, only trees that you have to worry about or anybody has to worry about with oak wilt are going to be live oaks and uh, the so-called red oaks, which encompasses a fairly, fairly good number of trees. And, I, and again, talking to the good arborists, they have seen oak wilt in a couple of other tree species, but not normally with any drastic consequences. Now, blackjack and post oaks, to me, are the biggest wimps in the world. They die if it gets too dry. They die if it stays too wet. I suspect the tree that you lost this spring was probably simply from the soil becoming waterlogged, which cuts off the oxygen to it, and um, uh, it, it's a fairly common problem. But, but oak wilt was definitely not what caused you to lose that tree. Okay, this one particular tree where it differed from the other tree about 15 years ago that died, that, that mm-hmm. tree was a large tree. And it was in a and it was in a low spot where I could see it would be wet. This right. other tree was on was on high ground, so I don't know. I you I know you <laughs> go go figure. And you're in an area where sometimes you've got a layer of clay underneath that keeps more water closer to the surface. But uh, again, it's not the water that causes a problem. It's that the water drives the oxygen out of the soil, which is a problem of the roots because roots need plenty of oxygen. And there are a couple of other diseases that do show up uh, when we have so much wet weather. Uh, you can get hypoxylin canker in some of the other oaks. I've not seen cottony root rot, but I'm not going to totally rule it out. But uh, I, I can tell you that it wasn't oak wilt, and it was almost certainly weather-related because this was a very unusual event that we had so little sun and so much rainfall in the early part of the year and uh, I have quite a number of people I've talked to that have lost both post oaks and blackjack oaks. But, you know, they're fast growing. But unfortunately, sometimes we get a, a combination of events. They die about as fast as they grow. I got you. Okay. Concerning the live oaks that are interspersed, I don't have to be concerned about the oak wilt then? Well, I'm, you know, always do the um, the usual preventive things. If you have any pruning to do or anything, Paint those right. wounds. Doesn't have to be pruning paint. Uh, can be just probably just plain old latex paint. Works as well or better than anything else. And um, um, be careful in bringing in firewood. Be sure any firewood that you bring in, especially from the hill country, is well seasoned. You want to see splits in it. They say once uh, the moisture content drops below, I think it's seventeen percent. Any spores, which is how the oak wilt disease spreads over a large area. Any spores are totally deactivated, so don't be going up and cutting, you know, freshly dead trees. If you're buying wood from somebody, I would prefer to burn live oak because it doesn't make the spore mats or pecan or something. But if you get red oak, which is excellent, excellent firewood, just be sure that before you bring it onto your property that you start seeing checking in the wood. You start seeing the splitting in um, those uh, bigger logs because that'll tell you the wood's dry enough that you're not in any danger of bringing in oak wilt. So those are the only two things that I would just be vigilant of, but okay. uh, you're in a you're in a low-risk area. I'll certainly put it that way. Okay. I appreciate it much. Thank you. Great questions. Thank you for the call, James. Appreciate, I appreciate it. All right. It's going to be Pat, Mary, and Micah, and Jenny, and Pat's up first. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. About three questions. First of all, I was gifted with about five bags of magic sand. Very good. What do you do? What's the difference between magic sand and green sand, and how do I use it? 
Well, you would use magic sand exactly like you use your green sand. Magic sand is, in effect, just a high-grade green sand. They don't share their sources with me, but my suspicion, knowing the people at uh, Ladybug early on, I think they were actually bringing a super high grade of green sand out of uh, the New Jersey area, the northeastern area. It was higher in sulfur and higher in iron than uh, most of the other green sand. So I would use it exactly like you use green sand. Any plant that needs slightly more acidic soil, anything that may be showing some... uh, iron deficiency yellowing there's a lot of yellowing going on from getting too dry but anywhere you've got new growth yellowing and it would be especially prominent on acid loving plants like gardenias and azaleas and hydrangeas Uh, those are places you want to use your magic sand for sure but uh, in my garden i use it on my beans and peas because they seem to be a little bit more demanding of extra iron I think it also will bump up your both growth and production on tomatoes. So just, you know, just treat it as if uh, the bag said magic or said green sand instead of magic sand. Okay, so it would be okay to put it around. I have a huge uh, bur oak tree that's everything's yellow underneath it, that oh, yeah. uh, carpet grass. Put a little of that or not on the grass? I would put uh, several cups of it around. A little is not a definitive enough word. I'm, I'm not going to just yeah. go out and pour a whole bag of it, but I'm going to. Just take yeah. a scoop and, you know, grab it and just take my hands and sling it everywhere around it. And the grass will love you okay. for it, and so will the tree. Okay. Well, thank you. That's great. Well, I was gifted for something good then. <laughs> uh, love it. I have a neighbor who wants to get rid of her beautiful Asiatic chest when she's got about a 25-foot concrete uh, fence. Uh-huh. And it's crawled up the fence, and she saw a few snakes, and she is petrified now. <laughs> she wants everything out. Okay. And I thought, well, orange oil, dig it, take the weed eater, pull it down. What would you do? Because it is oh, I can't grow it in my yard, and it is beautiful in her yard, but she wants it out. Well, if it is Asian jasmine, um, it's, of course, not attaching itself to the fence. It's just winding its way around. And if she will cut it off at ground level, I think that what she's going to find is that in a huge 25-foot-long area, there are probably not more than six or eight plants, but figuring out exactly where those plants are can be tough. I would go through, just cut everything off at ground level, and then where it sprouts out, which is just going to be a handful of places, I'd just get in there with a grubbing hoe and uh, be 30 minutes worth of work, and it'll be gone. Uh, be a lot easier than trying to spray or do anything else, which uh, Asiatic Jasmine is pretty tough. It's resistant to most sprays, but in this case, it's pretty easy uh, since it doesn't take root. It can make a 30-foot-long vine and not take root anywhere along the whole vine. So you go back and find where the roots are. It's pretty easy to eliminate them. Well, I wish hackberries would, in fences would be that easy. <laughs> and I can name a few other things, too, mesquite among them and hackberries and poison ivy. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. It's, uh, it's a shame. I, you know, I, of course, would encourage her to go with a cedar product or something like that to repel the snakes. But I had an aunt once that was so terrified of snakes uh, uh, she would tell me every snake in the world's dangerous because I'm likely to hurt myself trying to get away from it. So, I uh, people that have that phobia for reptiles, I'm 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 sorry for them, but I, there are plenty of them out there. And if she wants to eliminate it, that's her choice. Well, she was going to buy a bunch of vinegar and orange oil. She nah. said, I know you owe. And I thought, well, let me see. 
You can dig those to China. They keep coming back. I, I don't know what to do with them. I move. You know, <laughs> it's uh, they're a lot yeah, tougher. Yeah, I mean. cut them off several times below ground level. Eventually, you will kill them. But the Asiatic jasmine's got not going to be so much of a problem. Oh, but I love her Asiatic jasmine. Anyway, you were talking about broccoli. Yes. These now are plants. I always plants. set broccoli out as plants. I don't think it works right. well to direct seed it in the garden. Now, you could certainly start some plants for yourself, uh, get some little pots or take an old egg carton, the styrofoam ones, punch holes yeah. in the bottom of the cells, and plant one seed per cell in just potting soil. Uh, and about a month from now, you'll have nice little transplants. Uh, but okay, so I... I didn't get your what you were talking about broccoli cut, kind of cut off. So I could plant some seeds now, in, in of course in pots. Yeah. Okay. Do or that, hopefully I you carry any. Um, do you carry any now? Any broccoli? We, yeah, now? we normally we normally have seeds and plants, but none of the growers have the plants ready yet. Um, right. Had I done what I should have <laughs> done, I would have planted some seed for myself back around the Fourth of July, but. Let's just say it's been a very busy summer in a number of different ways, and there are a few other things were a little higher on the priority list. So I'll be buying my broccoli plants just like most other people. Okay, so if we can put them out, put them out. I mean, to get the seeds seeded. Yeah, if if you want to start some seeds, now would be a time to do it. As soon as we get past this uh, real heat wave that seems to have us cornered for the next 10 days or so, I would not hesitate to plant plants wherever you find them. Okay, thanks a lot for all your help and your knowledge, and have a great, great week. You do do the same, Pat. I sure do appreciate it. And uh, next up will be Mary. Good morning, Mary. Yes, uh, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have a a Monterey oak tree that's probably about 20, 25 years old, and Mm -hmm. underneath it, the St. Augustine grass, uh, just in the last five years, it gets filtered light. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems like it, the grass is receding, and it keeps receding, and then, you know, dying along the edges. And I keep, you know, planting some sprigs, and and they do okay there, uh, but I haven't gotten filled in that area. It's a, you know, pretty large area, probably right. about a four, six feet. I I don't know what's going on. Is it just that it's just not getting enough light that's or exactly, water? Or? That's exactly what's going on. It's uh, light. And just the thicker and more beautiful the oak gets, the worse your grass is going to do. Uh, if you want something that looks like grass, dwarf monkey grass, dwarf mondo grass, you could plant in that area. And, uh, you know, it's beautiful dark green, and it will tolerate those lower light conditions. Uh, we were just talking about Asiatic jasmine. <laughs> this lady getting to ri- uh, wanted to yeah, get rid of it. I don't like that. Yeah. But uh, in Fredericksburg, it will do well. I'm not, not going to say that every now and then we don't get enough cold, a cold enough winter to cause it a few problems. But you could plant English ivy. You could plant Vinca major or minor. There are other ground covers that you could put under there. Uh, or you could put, you know, some of the native things like beautyberry or Turk's cap or some of those things. Uh, you can have plants yeah, have under. Have Turk's cap. Yeah. yeah. It's just too shady for grass. Okay, I just didn't want, uh, I didn't want to have grub worms or any of those things that are in the grass, but it's just on one side, mm-hmm. so I thought uh, that's kind of weird um, that well, it's just on one side. if we could get out and measure the total quantity, 
uh, units of life that it gets, you know, over the day's time. Um, the west side is always going to get more light than the east side. It's also going to dry more quickly. It's actually not that unusual to have one side continues to, doesn't really thrive, but kind of struggles along, and the other side really goes downhill. So uh, it does not sound like grubworm damage to me. I've uh, This been a year I've seen very, very little grubworm damage. I think it's a light issue, and I think if we had the capability to tell how many units per se of light it received in the entire day length, I think you'd find that uh, some areas getting a little bit less light than others, and those are the ones that are always going to languish. Okay, I'll just have to make a shade bed, I guess. I will not be a bad thing. <laughs> okay, Bob, thank you. It's always a pleasure, Mary. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Mikey is up next, and it will be Jenny, then it will be Hilda, and we'll see who's on line number four. Good morning, Micah. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. So I have this uh, uh, cedar tree in the front of my house. It's the only tree in the front of my house, so I want to keep it. And uh, it's got a good trunk, and it splits uh, like it forks. And then around it, I have about 5 by 5 lantana. Okay. Well, my tree, over the last maybe five months or so, I noticed on the right side where it splits, uh, it looks like it's starting to turn brown and looks like the left side's gro- uh, growing and the right side's not. So I was hoping that there was some sort of product I could put to maybe encourage growth. And and what kind of tree is this? By cedar, do you mean just like the native junipers? What sort of tree is you it? You got it. Okay. Um, there are a couple of products that would have the potential for helping one of them is kind of a if you read the bottle it looks like snake oil comes a little brown bottle with a yellow label it is called super thrive and i don't know what all's in there i know there's a bunch of vitamin in there because it smells like b vitamin and uh but i have seen it bring back plants that uh, i would have written off as dead uh the other mm-hmm. thing is just you know what uh, howard garrett calls the strict sick tree program which is being sure the root flares were exposed using uh you know what he calls garret juice which is a mixture of apple cider vinegar liquid seaweed compost tea uh things like that but your issue with that cedar is most likely moisture related and we always see you know when we have a, a spring as wet as this one was the young cedar grows like mad a lot of the old cedars just fold up and die because they can't handle all the moisture you need to be mm-hmm. careful with the things that you have planted around that cedar that you're not keeping the soil too wet. Now, chances mm-hmm. are the part of the tree that looks bad is going to look worse. The part of the tree that looks good is going to get better, regardless of whether you do anything or not. But a little Garrett juice, a little Super Thrive, and, of course, the other parts of the sick tree treatment program, such as uh, being sure the root flare is exposed and all, you'd be doing everything you can uh, to support that cedar tree. But I'm serious. This is a spring when I walk around my ranch, when I see you around my business partner's ranch. You know, we have a tremendous secondary growth of young cedars. But a lot of our big old primary growth cedars uh, mm-hmm. just decided to fold up and die when they stayed too wet. So Yeah, not, I figured that's what happened this year. Yeah. Yep. I'll take the rain and lose the cedar myself, but 
It's yeah. uh, uh, there are a lot of other things that if that tree does decide to go that you can put in there that will be a little bit more durable. But I think the most important thing here is just be sure you're not adding a bunch more water. Now, in weather like this, yeah, even the cedars like a little bit of moisture. But I, I see a lot of people kill cedar trees because uh, these things have sat there for 20 or 30 or 50 years. And then they plant grass around them. And they plant flowers. They start watering on a regular basis. And the cedar turns up its toes and dies because it says that's more water than I can handle. So be sure you're not aggravating the problem. But uh, um, it's, you know, chances are, like I say, the part that's looking bad, that section's probably going to go ahead and die and have to be trimmed out. I would not be at all surprised if the rest of the tree comes back and does just fine. And what was that product again? Something Thrive? Uh, super, S-U-P-E-R, Super Thrive. And just read the bottle and laugh. There's an interesting story behind that. Uh, the um, military back in World War II commissioned this fella. Um, oh, golly, Dr. Thompson was his name. Uh, he died at age 102 recently. I think he was probably drinking his own product. But uh, they commissioned him to research and find something that would very, very much speed up plant growth because they were interested in camouflaging uh, uh, military installations and things like that. And, you know, that's why the bottle will say approved by the armed forces. And it, it just makes it sound like snake oil. My first experience with it was a lot of years ago. I was working with my friend Alton Grimm up in Bernie. We got a shipment of cuttings that had been delayed in the shipment, and I thought they were dead. They were just shriveled up. It was a plant called Pachystacia lollipop, and uh, I thought they were just, you know, dead sticks. And I said, Alton, what are we going to do with these? He said, oh, we'll pot them up and water them in with Super Thrive, which I did, thinking it was a waste of time. Watered them in with Super Thrive, and 296 out of 300 cuttings came out and grew. So uh, it it does it does work wonders in some cases, but uh, um, like I say, that and, and the Garrett juice sure. probably will help that cedar, but uh, uh, it, it just didn't like all the moisture this spring. All right. Well, I appreciate the help. Always a pleasure. Let me know how it works out for you, Micah. Will do. Thank Bye. you. Bye. All right, uh, next up is Jenny, then it'll be Hilda and Robert. Good morning, Jenny. Hi. Good morning. I am so grateful you're there for us to ask these <laughs> questions. And then we listen and we find answers to things like the Super Thrive. I'm sure that clicked because I have some, but my neighbor gave me a rose tree. Okay. It's like a twisted thing. She bought it at H-E-B, and uh-huh. she didn't have a place in the sun, so it was looking pretty bad and she told me if you'd like to have it take it my grandson came a couple of days ago and i went ahead and planted it out of fear that it was getting ready to fall apart Uh uh-huh i want to be sure that i did everything i could i had him dig the hole bigger than the tree put some fresh potting soil in it because i didn't know how hard the ground would be there Mm -hmm. i I watered it in with has to grow mm-hmm. uh, mixture, and I didn't know if there's something else that I should do at this uh, point. Now, maybe. Yeah, it, at this point, Jenny, I think you've done about everything you can. 
Um, if I were doing it, I would not have added the potting soil. I the the problem is if we start making the soil too good right at the base of the plant, then the plant has no desire to put its roots out into the surrounding soil, which is what it really needs to do to become established. But um, that's not a big issue, and watering it in with uh, you know with the Medina has to grow, I think, is a very good thing to have done. Roses, the the most critical thing on planting roses is never, ever allow the roots to become dry and be sure they are in a good sunny area. Now, your rose tree, which I would actually call a tree rose, is a it's a little bit different from most rose bushes because most of those H.E.B. rose bushes are grafted plants. They were grafted down towards soil level when they make a, quote, rose tree. The graft point is way up high, and so, you know, you've got that little cluster of growth up at the top. Think of that as one plant, and think of everything below that as a separate plant. So any little sprouts that come out on the trunk, any little sprouts that come out from the base of the plant, those Mm -hmm. you do not want to encourage. You want to take your pruning shears and cut them off or just take your thumb and break them off as soon as you see them. Because that is the rootstock, and you don't want to encourage that to grow. You want to encourage the top. But, you know, just good rose care. Don't ever let it get bone dry. Feed it with some regularity. I would spray with uh, garlic periodically to reduce the issue of thrips on the blooms when it gets ready to go back to producing a bunch of blooms this fall. But you're off to a real good start. As long as it's in sun, as long as you keep it adequately moist, um, it should do just fine for you. And I just it was with test grow really soaked in slowly mm-hmm. uh, three day, two or three days ago when it was planted. Uh, when I should be able to water it with a super thrive like today or tomorrow. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Okay. Just just feel the soil at the base of the plant, and when it's beginning to dry, it's time to water again. And always remember, water does not cause any problems. But water, if it is so frequent or if the soil just doesn't drain, water drives the oxygen out of the soil. Lack of oxygen is what hurts the root system. So this kind of weather, you can water fairly frequently. And as long as that soil is not just waterlogged, which it's not going to be, um, I'm not going to worry about watering a little bit more frequently than I would be in cooler times of the year. Well, I feel better about it. Now, I have one other thing. I have a really big beautiful american beauty berry it's like five foot tall and spread that wide and it's really too large getting too large for where i have it planted Mm -hmm. yeah when would i be able with it growing that large already it's been there like three years Uh would i be able to have somebody to dig that up and transplant it somewhere else and when is it is it under a tree is it under other plants or is it Okay, I'm I'm a little concerned that it would be hard to dig the plant out without damaging the tree roots, um, oh, and also it's a just crate myrtle. Yeah, I, again, if you want to do it, midwinter is the time. I would prune it back substantially and then try to get a root ball that's ten inches or so in diameter. But um, okay. how close is it to the trunk of the crate myrtle? Oh. Probably within six inches or eight. No, forget about it. You're not going to be able to transplant that. You can prune it back to reduce the size, although that will reduce the berry production to some extent. But American Beauty Berry is a beautiful plant. 
Go spend oh, 10 bucks and get yourself a new one and plant it where it's not going to be so crowded. And you you were talking to somebody a little bit ago about uh, it doing, I mean, it is in the shade there, mm-hmm. but it, it, it does better in the shade. If I buy a new one to plant somewhere, it'll do okay to put it in shade. It If, it had, if I had to pick the perfect place for American Beautyberry, it would be sun in the morning, shade in the afternoon. Uh, okay. It will grow in full sun, but it sure does droop. It's happiest where it grows wild on my ranch, my partner's ranch. Uh, it's always in the shadier area, so that's where it really wants to be. Okay, I do agree with you. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's just full of those dark purple berries. Right and there's there. actually a pure white form as well you might look for sometime. But oh, it's a good native plant. That. It's a good hardy plant. All right, let's get to the phone lines. Hilda, Robert, Rosalie, and Jim. Hilda is first. Good morning, Hilda. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I have a question on um, a tree that I found that came from the base of these evergreen trees. Okay. And it grew some fruit, some small little fruit that was green, like the color of a green tomato, and then it turned completely red. It gradually changed to red. Okay. And I didn't know what it was, and my friends tell me it's wild apples. Mm. And I'm wondering if you can eat those. Um, and it is a woody, um, it is like a woody tree, like a shrubby tree. Um, yes, it just, like I said, it, it came, I didn't even notice it, but it, cause it's at the base of these two evergreen trees that are probably 75 years old. And the, the base, the, the trunk of this little tree looked a lot like that evergreen. And I realized, no, it's different and it has some leaves on it. And like uh-huh. I said, the fruit is very small. It's almost like the size of a. A very small Roma tomato. It's very small fruit. Okay. And I've had a couple of people tell me they're wild apples. I am not aware of, um, you know, any any wild apples in, you know, South Texas where you are. Hill Country, we sometimes get something called the Blanco Crab Apple. Um, there are a couple of wild plums. I would be a little suspicious of it, Um uh, golly, without seeing it, I, uh, do, do the birds eat it? Have you ever seen wildlife? Have you ever seen deer or anything like that go after it? Well, I don't have any deer around here. I mean, I have birds. I can't say I've seen them at the tree, but there's a ton of birds. And, uh-huh. and, and uh, we cut the one that turned completely red. We cut it open and it has the texture of an apple. It looks, you know, the way when you cut an apple, the <laughs> consistency of it. Well, it doesn't, uh, you know, it probably is fine, but I'm reluctant. It it just doesn't ring a bell with me um, of of what kind of fruit it would be. I, I always ask about wildlife because if wildlife is eating it, then, uh, you know, then it is probably okay. But uh, maybe, you know, maybe take a little taste. If it tastes like an apple, it is probably all right. I am not aware of any real toxic things that would fit that description. But without knowing, I'm, I, I certainly wouldn't go out and, and gorge yourself on them. But if you want to oh, taste it. That, I, yeah, there's not that many, but I was just curious. <laughs> I, again, I would, I would love to know, but I would... Uh, take that fruit. I visit your county extension agent's office or something like that, and uh, you know, get get a little bit more authoritative look at it. I, it's not anything that I'm familiar with. It is probably just fine, 
but just on the outside chance that it's something weird that's come in that would not be good for you, uh, call your, I mean, your tax dollars are what are supporting your extension service. So uh, call and talk to those folks over there, and they should know the plants of the area and be able to give you uh, a better answer. You could probably, I, you know, somebody else that I have immense respect for are the people that work for uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife. And uh, they have something called non-game biologists, and they specialize a lot in native plants and things that, uh, you know, support our non-game population. So I, I would find somebody either from your extension service or from Parks and Wildlife, verify for sure what it is, and um, it probably is just fine. I mean, it could be a rose hip. It could be a number of things that are very high in vitamin C, but uh until I know I'm just not comfortable telling you, oh, absolutely, it's perfect. Go ahead and eat all you like. <laughs> but it is probably okay. perfectly safe. I'd love to know if uh, if one of the more authoritative people can tell you what it is. I'd love to hear what it is. Okay, I'll try that then. Thank you for your time. You're sure welcome, Hilda. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, next up is Robert. Good morning, Robert. Good morning there, Bob. Thank you very much for taking my call. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. I got a few questions for you, but just kind of more in general. You know, I bought some Esperanzas, okay, Flambagos, okay. Birds of Paradise, uh, Red Crepe Myrtle. Okay, they're all facing west, and uh, I lived here in Timberwood Park, which we have a lot of deer, and uh-huh. I had them with some fence thing. And when I first got them, I I drenched them with uh, Hastur Grow, and I put them in the the ground. Yeah, the thing that I want to find out, you think. Those are kind of deer-tolerant uh, plants that I planted there. You know, Timberwood Park has a very concentrated deer population. Um, in most areas where the deer are, well, I can't, it's hard to say because most of the hill country is overpopulated with deer, and a hungry deer will eat almost anything. Um, your Esperanza is normally deer resistant. Your Pride of Barbados, uh, Bird of Paradise, Mexican mm-hmm. Bird of Paradise, is mm-hmm. pretty much totally deer resistant. Crepe myrtle, when it gets to be a big plant, will be totally deer resistant. You still may have to worry about the bucks rubbing on the bark, which can be very damaging to them. But as a small plant, the deer may nibble on it. What I would do is get yourself a little spray bottle of one of the deer repellents. And especially while those are young plants, the plumbago especially and the young crepe myrtle, mm-hmm. I would spray. There's one called liquid fence. There's another, um, oh, there are two or three of them that work pretty well. You put, spray them on about every 30 days. But mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think two out of four are very definitely deer resistant. The others probably will be as they mature a bit. One okay. thing to remember about white-tailed deer is, well, actually axis as well, but they can't just bite a leaf off. They don't have incisors for biting something off. They literally have to grab the plant and rip the leaf off of it. And a lot of people say, oh, the deer are pulling up my plants. Well, the pulling up is accidental. The deer are just trying to get a taste of it and see if they like it. So I would be, I'd be putting uh, some deer repellent on, uh, at least on the plumbago and crepe myrtle, and if you can, screen the deer away from them just until they get established. I, I, I put a uh, probably about four or five foot uh, fence around them right now, you know. And I try to water them in the morning and the evening. Is that? You may be doing it more often than you need to. Remember, there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. You want to water very thoroughly when you water 
but I'd be letting it go until the soil's dry about a knuckle deep. Um, generally speaking, I would say once a day should be plenty if you're watering enough. It's better to flood them and then maybe wait a little bit longer. How big of containers were these in? Were they in four-inch pots, gallon containers? How big are the pots they were in? Okay, the the Speranzas were about uh, nine gallons, the, the ones lower than that. Okay. You yeah it, it in in this hundred plus degree weather morning and evening is fine but as soon as it starts to cool off uh, yeah. cut back to just once a day because I put some of those uh, those I, I bought all this stuff from uh, over there at the, I forget the name of the place it's Stone and Soul or something yeah like that. Uh, I, I bought some uh, uh, some granite chips on it that uh-huh. inch and that, I covered them all you know in other words. That's and uh, that's I don't know if that's good or bad, you know. Well, granite is good in that it will hold moisture. It actually contains something we call paramagnetism that'll be good for the plants. On your crepe myrtle, especially, uh, be sure that the that the root flare is not buried. Most crepe myrtles come to the grow or come to the nursery planted too deep in the pot. And you, okay. you may want to dig down. You may want to pull the soil away from the trunk of the crepe myrtle until you find where the root flare is. That should always be exposed. And your granite should never be up against the trunk of these plants, but out over the root zone. It's a great thing. It's decorative. And like I say, it does, uh, uh, to some extent, help hold moisture. And, boy, and yeah, the weather put, we're having right now, that's a good thing. Yeah, I put that uh, barrier on top of it. You know? No, get rid of that. Yeah. No, oh, get rid no. of that. Get rid of that. That that will cause problems with the soil underneath it. But uh, just added to the surface of the soil, that's fine. But that root barrier should be outlawed. That stuff's terrible. Okay. All right. I wasn't really sure. Now I've got the uh, chili pekin that uh-huh. I bought in one gallon container. Yeah. And uh, shrimp plant. Uh, there's that yellow one. Right. And I bought some uh, spearmint plant. Now okay. the shrimp and the spearmint were in four four gallon. I mean four. Four-inch containers. Okay. And and I've got them in my patio, and it's enclosed. But I want to find out, do you think those shrimp plants would be deer-tolerant or not? Now, yeah. you said uh, that they are yellow in color? Yes. Uh, those, those, are, those are not shrimp plant. They look like shrimp plant, but oh, wow. uh, properly they are called lollipop or pachistache. They uh-huh. look a lot like shrimp, but unfortunately they are not cold-hardy. They're going to freeze and die in the winter months. And um, there is a yellow shrimp, but it's more of a chartreuse green. If it's bright yellow, beautiful plant, and it has little white segments come out of the corners. But uh, those are not shrimp plants. I'm sorry to tell you. And the deer would probably eat those. But uh, the the shrimp that you are looking for to do well in, in Timberwood Park is going to be that kind of coral-colored one. And it's going to be moderately deer tolerant if not resistant and it will be cold hardy but uh, whoever sold you that yellow they shouldn't have called it yellow shrimp because it is not and it is not cold hardy okay and see i'm going to keep these in the patio you know Mm -hmm. i'm going to put them in probably a little bit maybe a gallon containers you know well you may want to go a little bigger than that put them in gallons for now but uh the smaller the pot the faster that dries out and the harder it's going to be to maintain uh, your spearmint, yeah, boy, you might as well, if you have a place to put that in the ground, uh, it makes a beautiful ground cover. It is totally deer-resistant, and you really do want to keep that more moist than any of the other plants you've mentioned. But uh, your your so-called yellow shrimp, your lollipop, that one definitely needs to be kept in a pot, and it will have to come in whenever you're likely to have a freeze. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the, the chili picking, can I use, I bought also, I bought some of that Medina uh, potting soil, that top mm-hmm. shelf or whatever they called it. Yeah, that's know? actually New Earth's top shelf potting soil. Yes, sir. Uh, and uh, could I uh, use that on the chili bikini and sure. the experiment plants sure. and uh, the ones I'm going to keep inside? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, because the chili bikini, I noticed I uh, had it before, the deer will, will eat them for sure. <laughs> well, you know, you're going to find that as long as you stay with organic fertilizers like has to grow and things like that, uh, it will get to where it is more deer resistant. It's just, uh, I'm sure the growers have been feeding them with uh, some of the chemical stuff, which makes them grow faster and makes them more tasty to the deer. But uh, your chili pekin is going to do much better outside than inside. So if possible, find a spot that gets like half-day sun and just put some chicken wire or some sort of netting around it because it's hard to grow chili pekin inside. It wants to be outside where it gets more sun and gets the natural uh, humidity and things. My patio is all windows. Yeah. Okay, well, that that should be fine. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a plant that's happier outside than in. But uh, if you've got an enclosed patio, that would be fine. Okay, real good. I appreciate it there, Bob. Thank you very much for your always there. Always uh, a pleasure, Robert. Nice to hear from you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, looking at the phone lines going to be Rosalie, Jim, Julie, and Kim. Rosalie is first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for all of your information. Oh, it's my pleasure. Here. My pleasure. Uh, Bob, we live down here in Atascosa County, okay. um, just, uh, just a little bit northwest of Poteet, and it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only one suffering that right now, but uh, you certainly are getting plenty of it. Yes, yes, sir, and and no no rain for the last month. My problem is, our house faces west, mm-hmm. and I and I have I have a three or four raised beds in right in front of the house, and it gets total shade until about noon, depending on the time of the year, mm-hmm. and then it is in total sun until about four, because we've got. We've got a little a series of, uh, of live oak trees okay. uh, just yeah. in front of the house, just uh-huh. west of the house. So what can I put in those raised beds? There, There's four of them, and they're about 18 inches wide and anywhere from three foot long to six foot long. Are you looking for flowers, flowers. or green shrubs? Okay. Flowers. As far as perennials that you could put there, you could actually put plumbago there. You could put the true shrimp plant there. You could put uh, lantanas there. Lantanas would be beautiful uh, in that area. Um, Oh, gosh, those are some of the things that would be there and would come back from, you know, year after year. If you're looking for annuals to put in there, the so-called vinca or periwinkle, um, especially the Cora, C-O-R-A, Cora series of periwinkles is very resistant to the disease problems, and those things are just going to be an absolute mass of blooms from now until freezing weather. If I just wanted flowers everywhere, Vinca probably would be my first choice at this time of year. Um, you okay. could also plant, um, and you know where you are in Atascosa County, you're a little bit warmer than San Antonio, uh, there is a tropical shrub called Ixora, I-X-O-R-A, grows two to three feet tall, blooms for like eight months, nine months out of the year. Ixora would be beautiful there. If 
by it wouldn't get too big, you could actually consider putting some bougainvilleas out there. But okay. those are, you know, you just need to make your choice about what is going to, you know, please Rosalie most, because I think any of those things would grow really well for you. As long as you can keep it watered, you could plant one of the compact Esperanzas. Uh, there's some new colors. There's a rich gold. There's an orange. There's one that's almost red. I don't think you have room there for the big old uh, bright yellow one, and I don't think you have room for the Pride of Barbados, but the more compact uh, Esperanzas could be very pretty there. Okay. All right. All right, I'll give it a try, and thank you so much. Well, it is always a pleasure. It's nice to hear from you, and uh, let me know what you decide on. I'll look forward to hearing. I, I'll, I'll let you know. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Leslie. Bye. All right, uh, next up is Jim. Good morning, Jim. Hi, good morning. Morning, sir. I've uh, got a driveway, and I'm trying to get a shade tree forward in front of my house. I've okay. got a Chinese towel that's kind of on its last leg, so I need something to kind of be going here ahead of time, you know, for several years. Are you want? But anyway, I, are you wanting something that's going to grow to be a big tree very, very quickly, or are you going to want to put something there that's going to be there for your great-grandchildren? Well, I wouldn't say super quickly. I'm thinking like four or five years out, maybe. But well, I'm that's... thinking maybe like a red maple. But I didn't want anything that was going to like buckle the concrete with the roots or anything like that either. But kind well, of shade tree for the front of my house. It might be a little bit nice looking or whatever. Sure. Well, red maple's a terrible choice. You can't grow uh, red maples in our climate. Um, if you want, and and I would stay. Uh, I'd stay five to ten feet away from the driveway if you. Uh, the, there's nothing yeah, under yeah. the driveway. The tree's not going to want to put roots underneath there, but five to ten feet would still be a good distance. If you want something that's going to make a big shade tree quickly, Mexican sycamore is by far the fastest growing, and it will give you a nice shade tree in four or five years. It does take a little okay. bit of supplemental watering. Uh, if you want a fast-growing oak tree, and this is a variety that it, it does not have problems with oak wilt, the so-called Monterey oak, also known as Mexican live oak, Quercus polymorpha, uh, Mexican live oak would be fairly fast in its growth. It's a beautiful tree, and it's probably going to live 100 years in that spot. Um, there's a tree called cedar elm, which is a good, moderate growth tree, not anywhere nearly as fast as Mexican sycamore, but uh, for, for just it, just really fast growth, Mexican sycamore is going to still be the best. Uh, where you're a little more patient, you could go with uh, the Monterey oaks. There's another oak called the burr oak. There's another oak called the chinkapin oak. These are all oaks that do not have problems with oak wilt. And, uh, and like I say, your, uh, your uh, cedar elm is another good choice. Any of those trees would be fine. If you wanted something really pretty, you could plant one of the bigger growing crepe myrtles. We have crepe myrtles that grow up to 35 feet tall, like Basham's Party Pink. Uh, and, you know, they're going to bloom several months out of the year for you with wonderful flowers. There are some intensely red crepe myrtles out there. One of them is called um, Dynamite. Another uh, is, oh, uh, gosh, just a second, I'll tell you the name. It has the reddish foliage, Red Rocket. Red Rocket is another one which has dark red flowers and red foliage. There's some beautiful, rich pinks like Pink Velour. Um, not really going to be shaped quite like a shade tree, but there are some crepe myrtles out there that get big enough to give you some shade on the driveway, and yet it'll give you beautiful flowers through several months of the year, too. So you have lots of choices. 
I was thinking uh, I didn't want something with a low canopy because I'm pretty tall and uh, I don't want to be banging my head on tree <laughs> branches and all that. Is there something that's going to be okay with me, you know, pruning it like you know, eight feet, ten feet in the air? Then all of all of the things. Are out? All of the things yeah. I mentioned will be fine. Uh, it's just okay. a matter of your shaping them. Even the crepe myrtle will be. Now, here's the thing, though, with a developing tree. I'm glad you brought that up. You don't want to skin the trunk. You don't want a bare trunk from day one because if you leave little branches up and down the trunk, the trunk will grow much more quickly in diameter. You get a much bigger, much stronger tree. But what we do, the first several years the tree is in the ground, uh, every year, every spring you go back, and all the lower limbs, you cut them back to about three or four inches long. You still want to let them come out and make leaves because everywhere there's a leaf. It's like a little sugar factory pumping nutrition back into the trunk, and the trunk will grow much more quickly. Then when that trunk gets up to be four, five, six inches in diameter, then you cut those little limbs all the way off. But uh, they're, they're not going to hit the top of your, of your tall head. Just keep them trimmed back closer to the trunk, and then as the tree matures, you can remove them completely. But, yeah, all of the, all the trees I mentioned could be made to be more uh, to have a little bit higher canopy and uh, where they're not going to be a, a, a hazard to whacking the head on them. So would you say between the two Mexican sycamore or the Mexican oak, which would you say has a nicer, I guess, fall uh, leaf look or something like that when it's you know that season? Well, unfortunately in South Texas, we don't have beautiful fall color. Um, I mean, the Mexican live oak is going to not drop very many leaves at all. Mexican sycamore, yeah, Yeah. will be, and your tallow is actually one of the prettier fall plants that we have. But, uh, if, if I were looking for fall color, I think your big crepe myrtle is going to do a better job of giving you nice fall leaf color as well. It'll give you flowers in the spring and summer months and the leaves tend to be, on many varieties will be a beautiful red in the fall. Crepe myrtles, some of them are yellow, some of them are red, but crepe myrtles have some of our prettiest fall color. I see my crepe myrtles pretty much go straight up and down somewhat. I mean, are these going to canopy out a little bit? Depends on the variety, um, but Uh yes, they certainly will. I'd be looking, if you don't, if you wanted about 15 feet tall, look at dynamite or red rocket or... Uh, no, pink. I'm wanting bigger than that. Okay. Than yeah, that. look yeah. at Basham's Party Pink, and uh, I could tell you a bunch of places around San Antonio, but you just keep your eyes open. When you see a crepe myrtle that's 30, 35 feet tall, that's probably Basham's, and uh, yes, they will. They're not okay. going to spread out like a live oak, but they definitely will be yeah. big enough to give you some shade. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the call. Right. Thank you. Sure. Bye. Uh, to the phone line is going to be Julie Kim Esteban and Donna. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Good morning. I'm call- I'm calling from uh, Pipe Creek area. Very good. And I wanted to make a comment on one of the um, callers that called in about the uh, wild apple. Right. Um, we lived on a property that was uh, about 80 years old. Uh-huh. And... Uh, People living there and putting stuff, and there um, was a tree on there uh, that had jujubes. Uh huh. You heard of them? Oh yeah, yeah, I know jujubes. They, they all, they're a little more shrub-like than tree-like, but that's certainly a possibility. Well, now, I, most of the fruit I've seen on them is more of corn of a golden yellow than a real red color. 
But um, well, ours was um, a deep red, gone to kind of almost purple okay. when they were ripe. Uh huh. They were small, shaped like a Roma. Uh huh. And when you bit into them, it was an apple texture, you know, a slick yeah. skin. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a possibility. This, uh, uh, this, these folks are down south, so I knew it wouldn't be a crab apple. But jujube, yeah, that is very definitely a possibility. Yeah, Thank you. and like I said, it was probably 80 years old. Uh, <laughs> it was a tree, but um, you don't want to plant them on your property because they're very invasive. invasive. They yep. run roots, <laughs> and they have little hook-like little uh, thorns on uh-huh. them. Well, and so, yeah, and everything, when we're in the drought, everything else will be dead around it, but they'll be have that shiny leaf, green leaf. Uh-huh. Well, I appreciate you bringing okay. that up. I had not thought of jujube, that, but that could certainly be it. Yes, ma'am. And, and then also, um, I have some artichokes that are about three years old. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now they can't even see them. You know, they're all dried and everything. But um, so... Do I keep still putting water on them now? Yes, yes. don't. And then yeah. in October, transplant them? Um, I would wait for them to start putting on new growth, and you can transplant them if you want to. Some of mine are still gray-green. Some of them have gone brown. But in this kind of heat, you don't want to let them be totally dry. You want to be watering them maybe, maybe once a week or so. I would be giving them a good thorough soaking in the ground. In pots, I'd be watering them a whole lot more than that. But in the ground, I'd be watering every five to seven days. They will begin putting on new growth um, within the next few months. Okay, and one more. Um, I have a wonderful granddaughter about three years three years ago. They got me two uh, Fiji, Fuji apple trees because uh-huh. they asked me, uh, what's your favorite apple, Grandma? And anyhow, um, so uh, I water them probably um, twice a week. Okay. I didn't get any fruit off them this year. I got two apples last year. Can you tell me if they're going to do any good or are they just going to be a shade tree for me well fuji is a new zealand apple um last year was the first year you had them no they're three years three years old third year in the ground you will probably get some fruit from them with apples it's always best to have a second variety uh i tell them they need to give you an einshimmer or a lodi or gravenstein or one of our other milder uh, climate apples, but uh, um, most New Zealand trees are going to do okay here. In Pipe Creek, you know, your your soil is going to be a challenge, but um, like all apples, it's not going to be an every year thing, but some years you you should get fair production from them. You'll definitely get better production if you had a second variety to ensure cross-pollination. Okay, so just, okay, so, because I have two of them, mm-hmm. and my husband planted them pretty close together. Right. Well, but, it, um, two of the same variety are good. Two of different varieties are better, so, uh, and be sure, okay. you know, you get a low-chilling apple, a six, eight-hundred-hour apple, but uh, you will get some fruit with what you have. You'll get better quantities of fruit if you get a second variety in there. Yeah, because they're growing. I mean, oh, yeah? they've got new leaves and... They're nice and tall and 
Sounds like they're off to a good start. Be be sure that you're only using organic fertilizers because chemical fertilizers uh, or synthetic fertilizers, I should say, increase the risk of cottony root rot, which is what is the real the limiting factor on apple trees in the hill country. But natural products, it uh, I'll be looking forward to your seeing your winning pie in the Medina Pie Contest up there. Okay. <laughs> hey, thank you. My pleasure, Julie. Thank you for the call. Okay, let's go ahead and say good morning to Kim. How is Kim today? I am doing wonderful. And good. You? I about the same. Right. Okay, I have um, just one quick question. I was wondering what the difference is between the water roots and then soil roots when you're starting plants and seeds. I have a friend who um, highly is recommending that you use like the styrofoam floating method to start some samaria seeds. Okay. Twirls holes in the styrofoam, puts the seeds in, and then the roots, of course, come out the bottom. And I've always felt, or I've always started mine in like the perlite and some some good soil, loose soil. Right. Because I understood that the water roots were not the same as soil roots, and they almost have to start over again. Can you explain the difference to me? Well, and you are absolutely the one that is right here. Um, what plants, you know, actually form structurally, anatomically, a totally different type of root in an aquatic environment. Otherwise, they couldn't survive. And whether you're growing something from seed or whether you're growing cuttings, when you do transition them into soil, those so-called water roots do tend to die off and are replaced by roots that are better adapted to the soil uh, I mean, now, our grandmothers all grew pothos ivy in water, but they never tried to take it out and put it in soil. They had that same thing strung around the kitchen that had been in water for 35 years. And plants can survive, many plants can survive, you know, if they start out in water, but they have to stay there. Uh, but you are entirely right. The structure of the root is different. And when you move it, whether it's a seed or a plant, when you transition it to soil, it will go through, you know, a you know a big change. Now, a lot of people growing plumerias, they let them go to- totally dormant in the winter months. A lot of times, the roots die off completely, so maybe it's not as critical in plumerias as it is in other things. But starting them in a sterile medium, like perlite is the medium of choice, or even coarse sand is sometimes used, is a much much better plan than starting them in water and then transferring them to soil. Okay, well, you answered my question. Thank you. And you can yeah, go thumb your nose and tell your friend, I learned something, and I'm going to grow better plumerias than you. <laughs> well, I've always, had, I've always had good luck, but, you know, the actual, the biggest difference is the number of seeds you can start mm-hmm. in a smaller space. But if it's not, if it's going to have to almost start over again after you get that root system going, then it's hardly worth the extra time. Uh, you are, you and I are on the same page on that one, Kim, so... uh you keep doing what you're doing, and uh, you enjoy your plumerias. They're such a pretty thing this time of year. Oh, they're, they're, and they are doing so wonderful this summer. And the All fragrance. Right, well, thank you very much. You're sure welcome. Thank you. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Donna and Chris and Dan and Scott, and Donna's up first. Good morning, Donna. Good morning. Good morning. What I need to find out, I have a neighbor that uh, is going to be putting in a new lawn, and, of course, this is the worst time of the year to be able to do that. So probably they need to wait until we cool down a little bit. But 
What grass, what uh, carpet grass? I know carpet grass is pretty general. Um, they're they're looking at St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. St. Augustine is... varieties. Yeah, and, they're... Uh, what, is is their yard basically sunny, or do they have a lot of shade? Uh, they have sunny and shade. Okay. Um, the most sun-tolerant St. Augustine is called Floratam, F-L-O-R-A-T-A-M. That was developed as a coastal grass by University of Florida and Texas A&M. And in hot, dry areas, Floratam is by far the best of the St. Augustines. In shadier areas, my two favorites, one of them is called Delmar, D-E-L-M-A-R. The other is called Palmetto, P-A-L-M-E-T-T-O. And um, they can be planted anytime, so long as people will be there to water them. Uh, the most important things in planting sod of any sort, uh, it needs to be planted immediately. It cannot remain stacked on the pallets even a day or two. It really goes downhill in quality. You want to be sure after they lay it down that they uh, rent one of these water-fillable rollers and roll it immediately. It's not trying to level it. It's pressing out the air pockets under the grass. And as far as fertilizing, using an organic fertilizer, they could actually put fertilizer down before they planted, really get the grass off to a good start. Um, Chemical fertilizers we never use because they, they would create an water uptake which will be very bad for the new grass but uh they they can you know put their saw down anytime they're like so as long as they are there to water it but if they're going to st augustine my choice would be uh, floratam for the sun and either palmetto or delmar for the shade so you would put the fertilizer down before you put the sod? You can do that with organic fertilizers, or you can put it down right afterwards. I just bring that up because so many people will tell you, oh, you have to wait six or eight weeks before you fertilize. Back in the days when all we had were synthetic fertilizers, that was true because we had to let the grass get some roots established. But organic fertilizers don't burn. They don't cause the instant water uptake and uh, I like putting it down either right before or right after you plant the grass because it just gets the roots off to such a good start. So before. Okay, that that sounds reasonable. Uh, One other thing you were saying about rolling it, could you possibly, if you have like a uh, a Polaris Ranger, could you just roll over the grass (laughs) with that? I'm afraid you would create big ruts because you're going to have to water very very frequently to keep that to get that grass started you're probably going to be watering twice a day for a few minutes and something that concentrates all the weight on four tires uh no it's better to spend 10 bucks and water a and uh rent a roller that is more made for that purpose oh okay okay i was just thinking well you know that good excuse to get out and play on the atv but no in this case (laughs) rent (laughs) rent the roller to do a better job Okay, so I understand to go with Floratam for the hot area uh-huh. and Delmar and Palmetto on the shady areas. That's what I would do if you want to say now, now the Now, the shady areas are not that shady. There's mm-hmm. a lot of mesquite trees there. Sure, sure. So would, could you just put Floratam as over long as the it's, whole area? Yeah, as long as it's not dense shade, your Floratam would be, would be fine. And it is very tef- definitely the toughest kind of St. Augustine. It just doesn't want dense shade. How do you know what kind of grass you have, you know, from, uh, you know, like if you purchase a house that's been there for a long time? Uh, Probably dig up a little section of it and take to a good nursery, not a, you know, fly-by-night 
landscaper type of place, but, uh, you know, somewhere like uh, Phoenix or Shades of Green or probably Rainbow Gardens, uh, a good nurseryman would be able to tell you. And it's hard to determine, you know, when you get down, uh, okay, is this uh, Raleigh, is this uh, Palmetto, is this Del- Delmar? That is much harder to determine. If I were going to ask somebody that would likely know the answer to that, I would go out and see uh, Bill Thomas out at uh, Thomas Stone and Landscape Materials. He has typically, if, if somebody's buying grass, that's where I would probably send them because normally they have, in my opinion, the best grass in the area. But to to tell one St. Augustine from another, yeah, it's probably going to take a grass guy to be able to tell Zoysia versus Bermuda versus uh, St. Augustine versus some of the others. Uh, any good nursery should be able to tell you that. What would be like the oldest uh, St. Augustine in this in the San Antonio area? Because uh, you know, at one time, that's they just we had just, one kind. We just called it Texas Common. Texas Common. Right. Okay. They developed the Floratam to make because it was more resistant to chinch bugs. Is actually why it was developed. And chinch bugs a real problem in coastal areas, not so much in San Antonio. And people planting too much St. Augustine, moving into areas that were too shady, that's when they started working on some of these more shade-tolerant, some of these actually slower-growing St. Augustines. And both Palmetto and Del Mar, they call them semi-dwarf, although they're not really, but they are certainly the most shade-tolerant varieties out there. Okay, and they grow just as dense as a oh, yeah. town. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they do. Oh, and the one you want to stay away from is one called Raleigh because it is very brown patch susceptible. And there are some other varieties I haven't tried yet. Amerishade is one, and there, there a lot of different people sell some kind of made-up names, <laughs> if we can. But uh, the, the Floratam is very definitely a very good strain of grass uh, for, you know, sunnier areas or really bright shade. It should do very well for them. Okie doke. Well, thank you very much, and have a wonderful Saturday. Well, you do the same, Donna. It's always good to hear from you. All right, let's get straight back to these phone lines. It's going to be Chris, Dan, and then Bela and Renee. So, Chris, you're first. Good morning. Howdy. Good morning. I called uh, the other day, and I got so caught up talking about tall, straight mesquite trees, I forgot my actual question. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you got back through today. (laughs) So... My two questions about a lemon tree. Uh-huh. Back in about 1985 or so, my dad bought a lemon tree from a, a different a different radio guy on another station. Okay, that uh, was that was billed as real cold uh, cold proof and very large lemons. And, uh-huh. and for the most for the most part, that's correct. It grows lemons the size of big grapefruits. Very good. Uh, depend, depending on how many lemons it gets per year. Okay. Um, I think I heard you. So first of all, do you, would you have any idea what type of lemon that would be that would be um, cold resistant down to about 22 and and uh, make lemons that big? They, it could be Eureka. It could be Ponderosa. It probably is a hybrid of one of those. I know they, uh, they were developing uh, a frost-resistant orange, and I think they did. I think at one point they just called it frost lemon or lemon frost, something like that, that was... Uh, you know, build as being more cold-hardy. Now, they're not totally cold-hardy because, as you well know, temperatures can drop into the teens here periodically, so it doesn't mean you'll never have to cover them. But if I remember right, I think it was like lemon frost or something like that. Okay. 
Okay, I'll look that up, that one up. Uh, yes, it's definitely not totally cold hardy. It froze in '89, I believe. When okay. We had that real bad Christmas spell. Right. And then two winters ago, it got down to 18. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the tree froze, but it's planted next to about a quarter acre pond. Uh huh. And and the side next to the pond didn't freeze. <laughs> sort of the lake effect, you might say. Exactly. Uh, the, yeah, the reverse lake effect. <laughs> there so, you go. And the, the thing you just have to remember, of course, is after these freeze events, watch it very carefully because it'll try to sprout out from the rootstock, and it is probably a grafted variety. So um, uh, you you want to be sure that it doesn't revert to the rootstock, cut off everything, comes out below the graft point. Um. I think I heard you say a while back that there's some citrus trees that take seven years for the branches to mature enough to bear fruit. Well, did not I, did I, did see, I that right. Well, yes and no. Um, a seedling-grown tree uh, does take; it has to reach physiological maturity, sexual maturity, as it is uh, before it is capable of blooming and producing fruit. But the miracle of grafting things is when you take your little seedling tree and you graft mature wood onto it, it can have fruit the first year. Once the wood has matured, it is, um, you know, there's no weight. It's just, it's that first growing from a seed to a producing tree takes six to seven years. But you can take a tree that's older, you can take a tree that is mature, you can graft it onto as many different trees as you want to, and it can produce the first year because that wood is already matured. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It sure does. Um, since this tree froze, I guess it was either a year and a half ago or two and a half years ago, um, the limbs that didn't freeze are still bearing fruits. Yeah. All the, all the limbs that have regrown on the opposite side of the tree are still, still don't have any limbs, and I was just wondering how how long that might take before those things start making fruit. Oh, they, on that they obviously they have to be able to bloom and then make fruit, but uh, um, there's no reason it shouldn't, you know, shouldn't happen this year. But do check and be sure that what has grown out on that side of the tree is not coming from the base of the tree, but it's coming off the main trunk of the tree. And right. uh, usually if you look carefully, the ones that come off the rootstock will be slightly fat, flattened, and they will have much larger thorns on those branches. So... Uh, and if it's coming off the rootstock, it doesn't produce as heavily, and the fruit it produces is extraordinarily sour. So I want you to look at the tree very, you know, very carefully, and be sure that uh, it is still all those all that new shoot, all that new growth that's coming off the frozen portion is off the trunk, not coming out from the base of the tree. All righty, I will do that. Very good. We'll get out very and have good. a good Saturday, a good weekend, and we'll talk again, Chris. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. You're sure welcome. Thank you. Bye. All right. Let's head up Pipe Creek Way again and say good morning to Dan. How's things today, Dan? Just hot and dry like yesterday? Hot and dry like yesterday. Good morning, Mr. Bob. Good morning, sir. Listen, Mr. Bob, I bought a a tree at the Bernie uh, plant sale. I guess it was in June. Right. Mostly native sale. Right. Yes, sir. And it's it's a Texas flame leaf sumac. Okay. And so, you know, with all the rain we had in the early part of June, um, it looking great. But, of course, we had no rain in Pike Creek last month and, you know, nothing to date so far. Right. So what I'm doing is I'm putting a soaker hose on it, and I'll soak it once a week, and I'll let that soaker hose run for a couple hours. Is that sufficient? That should be fine. That should be fine. Now, one thing about soaker hoses, soaker hoses tend to produce 
like 80% of the water comes out in the first 20% of the hose. It's the reason I don't recommend them generally because, you know, the stuff on one end of the hose doesn't get enough water. The other on the other end of the hose gets really soaked. If you're watering with the soaker hose, be sure the wet end of the hose is near where your uh, sumac is so that you are getting it well watered. Now, flame sumac, if at best it will make a shrubby tree, it's certainly not a shade tree. And uh, it is some of our absolute best color in the fall. It's uh, flame leaf is a very, very good description of it. But expect it to be a, a bushy plant, not a true single trunk tree. And, uh, you know, watering thoroughly once a week is going to give you good growth. And uh, come about November or so, it'll probably be the most colorful plant in your landscape. Well, great. Here's another question I have about this tree. So, it's uh, it's about I don't know it's about five feet tall I guess uh-huh. and ninety uh, percent of the leaves on the tree are, are look healthy and green but I've got a couple patches here and there where they're fading and they're kind of a yellowish red and they've got black dots okay. on the leaves. Um, believe it or not, it could be staying too wet. So um, water here's here's the way to water that or most other plants. Water very very thoroughly when you water. Stick your finger down in the soil. Be sure it's dry about a knuckle deep before you water again. Now, some of that is normal. Flame leaf sumac is like most other native plants. And when you get into weather like we're having right now, not all the foliage is going to stay beautiful. But if the newest growth on the plant is looking good, and this plant is going to sucker, it's going to spread from the base. It's going to produce multiple trunks and multiple new growth. That is a good thing, not a bad thing. I would encourage that. But uh, okay. do remember what I always tell people about watering. There is no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. When you water, you really want to flood it, but then don't water it again until it's dry like a knuckle deep. And uh, um, it's kind of natural that you have a little bit of growth on. Uh, it's just like most native plants. It's just not going to win a beauty contest, you know, on a you know 365 day a year type of thing because the foliage is not always going to be beautiful it will consistently be colorful in the fall but it's just it's it's not a lemon tree it's not going to have beautiful okay. leaves most uh, all of the year because uh, i remember hearing you say that what you told me about the soaker hoses in the past so what right. i do is i just i just took the whole thing and kept it coiled uh-huh and I set it, I just set it over the tree, you know, underneath the tree on yep. the ground. That's fine. And I ran my hose to it. That way the whole, the whole coils are sitting there soaking the trees. So. Yeah, you're doing fine with it that way. Just, uh, and two hours would be about right to give it a thorough soaking. But just go out and, you know, stick your finger down in the soil and be sure it's dry about a knuckle deep before you turn it on again. Okay. And one more quick question, if I may. Sure. Um, you know how it is out here in Bandera County. We've got we call them goat head stickers. Those right. round. That's not what we call them, year. but uh, we can't say the words <laughs> on the air that we call them. Yes, sir. I know what you're speaking of. Well, boy, they're terrible. And the poor dogs. You know, they're oh. they're bringing them in and getting stuck to them. Yep. Is is the maze what you put down in the fall? Doesn't do any good. Doesn't do any good at all. Okay. The problem with pre-emergent herbicides like a maize, and those are actually very hard on some of your better plants, so I do not recommend or use a maize. But what you have to remember is that a pre-emergent does not kill seeds. A pre-emergent stops the seedling plant from developing a root system, and it usually will shrivel and dry in, in dry times. 
But um, the problem, you know, is that with things like the goat heads, they can germinate any time from March till September, still make the blasted seed and still have plenty of seed out there for next year. You would have to put a pre-emergent out about four or five times to have any hope of controlling them. And that's expensive. That's hard on the land. And it's just not practical. Uh, areas of your grass and places where you want to have a, a sticker-free turf. Uh, I had an area, and, you know, I live literally just down the road from, from you. I'm on 46 between Pipe Creek and Bernie. And, uh, but I had an area that we used for a croquet court, say, 30 feet wide and 60 feet long, that you could not walk into. The dogs didn't even try to walk into it in the summer months. Uh, in the fall, this has been several years back, I put about half an inch of compost over that area, and the next spring, I think I pulled uh, three sticker burr plants the entire summer from that area. That compost is just the best natural pre-emergent, does wonders for the soil. Obviously, you can't do it over 20 acres, but if you have, you know, a given place where the dogs love to roam, where you kids, grandkids, whatever, like to get out and play, I highly recommend compost to you as a good uh, controller of, you know, most of the problem weeds. But uh, amazed, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be putting that on my property. Yeah, we don't, we don't use any inorganic uh, no. products on the property at all. Um, I didn't know uh, if that was as harmful as a lot of the other stuff. Well, amazed is, is not organic. It's, uh, it's a very right. toxic chemical. But uh, any place that you really want to control them. You know, in people that are blessed with better soils, their native grasses and things uh, grow to the point that they choke out the goat heads and other weeds. Those of us that live on very thin soils, um, we have to work a little bit harder to get rid of them. We call them a real pain in the grass. I can't say that on the air. <laughs> <laughs> pain everywhere when you get Yes, sir. It. Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Bob, I appreciate your help as always. Always a pleasure, Dan. Thank you for the call, sir. And it's Bella's turn first. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? Just fine. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. Uh, I've got a question. We need to be moving some mountain laurels. Um, two of them about two feet tall, and one of them is about three feet tall. Is that possible to move them? And then if so, what do we need to do okay. to make sure it's success? Do you need to do it right now, or can you wait a little while? Uh, probably, yeah, within a couple of weeks. Okay, because any woody plant is hard to transplant in the heat. Best okay. be trend time to transplant these is December, January. Of all the trees, now are these things that just came up from seed, or were these planted trees? Uh, well, they did come from seed, but we planted them. Okay, and how long ago did you plant them? Probably about a year, year and a half ago, okay. would be my guess. The, the problem with Mount Laurels is their root system is so sensitive. If you break up the root system, the tree dies. Even the okay. professional transplanters probably lose 30% of what they try to dig and move. And so it's good, in effect, that, uh, that you started them out in seed and then grew them in a pot for a while before they went into the ground because their root system is a little bit more condensed right around the base. If you, what I would do, I would have your new holes dug. When I dig that root ball, I want to get a, a root ball that's mm, probably a foot, maybe 14 inches wide. And I'm going to kind of dig a trench around, and then I'm uh, around the tree that I want to move. 
and I'm going to do absolute minimal breakage of the root ball when I move it. I, uh, your professionals would tie it up with burlap. The best of the best would then wrap a layer of chicken wire around it. They have a little tool they put on there that cinches it tight. Just anything you can do to avoid breaking the root ball is going to increase your chances of successfully transplanting it. After you okay. move it, after you plant it in its new spot there, water it in, Garrett Juice, Super Thrive, something like that will help. And I'm going to give you a 50-50 chance since these are small trees that started out in containers and then got planted out. I think there is a possibility. I'd hate to see you just, you know, cut them down. But don't blame yourself if you're not completely <laughs> successful. Even okay. even the pros lose a lot of them when they do it. But just the, the whole secret is in not breaking that root ball up and just do everything you can to avoid it. Obviously, okay. when you move it, handle it only by the ball. Don't ever grab it by the top. And like I say, you want it expose the air the minimum period of time. You want to literally take it out of the ground, carry it over, put it right in its new hole, fill it back in, and water it thoroughly with one of the root uh, products uh don't use root stimulator that stuff's the biggest waste of time and money i've ever seen but uh the the super thrive or the garrett juice would be real good things to water a man with and uh i'll keep my fingers crossed for you and hopefully all three of them will make it uh but uh you're taking on a challenging project and like say the most it's not going to be that much work but just don't blame yourself if you're not totally successful if one or two of them don't make it because even the pros are not totally successful Okay, okay. How often should it be watered initially? Uh, initially, uh, just when the soils dry about a knuckle deep. And okay. where you plant it, don't plant it near a sprinkler head. Don't plant it near, you know, other plants. You shouldn't be watering super frequently because most of the problems I see with established mountain laurels is why, where they're staying too wet. So, yeah, gotcha. water thoroughly. It's probably going to be every four to seven days when you first transplant it. But uh, remember, there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. When you water it, water it really thoroughly. Uh, you can take, put your thumb over the end of the hose and just spray over the foliage and the trunk of it, uh, the bark on the uh, limbs, as often as you like. But just let that soil dry an inch or so deep at the base of the plant before you water again. Perfectly. All right. I do appreciate it, Bob. Good luck. Let me know how it works Thank out. Thank you. Okay, then. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, next up is Renee. Good morning, Renee. Hello. Thank Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I have two Boston ferns that I bought at ATB in the spring. Okay. And unfortunately, they have to hang in the sun. They're hanging baskets. Um, but they're getting brown leaves on them. I want to find out uh, how often I should water them and what I can put on them to prevent that browning. Well, you're looking at sunburn is what you're looking at. Uh, morning okay. sun is okay for Boston ferns, but, you know, if you're a fair-skinned Norwegian, all the sunblock in the world is not going to save you from getting sunburned on a on a July or August day in Texas. And oh. Boston ferns simply will not tolerate the afternoon sun without burning. So um, oh. your choices would be either find a way to create some sunscreen for them or you know, or move them or or give them to a friend and go out and buy the so-called asparagus fern, which is not a fern at all. Asparagus springer, I will tolerate that hot sun with no problem. But a Boston fern, it's just, you just got too much sunlight for it. And that's why it's getting brown. Okay. As far Uh, as the watering though, it's, uh, 
you know, water very thoroughly when the soil even begins to dry. With a true fern like a Boston fern, it would be hard to keep it too wet. Uh, this kind of weather, you're probably almost going to have to water it daily. Oh, okay. All right. The other question I have is about asparagus. Of course, it's um, quit producing and grown into the bushes. Right. I wanted to find out how often we should be watering that and when should we cut it back down. Well, typically, we wait until it freezes in the fall or winter months to cut it back down. If it doesn't freeze, we'll lop it off oh, sometime around the 1st of January, just cut it down to ground level. Now, mm-hmm. asparagus will tolerate getting dry, but I want those plants as healthy as possible through the summer months because that's going to give me the best asparagus next spring. So about twice a week probably is how often I would be watering, and I'd be watering very thoroughly encourage that that ferny foliage look uh that's what's strengthening the root system which is what's going to give you the best asparagus next spring so fertilize fairly frequently water a couple of times a week and uh after the first frost normally it will brown out if this turns out to be a very mild winter cut it back early in january because my asparagus typically starts coming out and producing by the middle of january if we don't have a super cold winter so uh, you just want to cut it back before the new growth starts. Okay. And my last question, I have a sago palm that's huge. It's about 15 feet tall and wow. 30 feet around and the biggest <laughs> one I've ever seen. And I never water it, but I wondered with this drought if I should be watering it. It would be happy if you could give it water maybe every week or two. But sagos, other cycads, I mean, these things have been around since the days of the dinosaurs. They've outlived. We've had millions of species go extinct, and the sagos just hang in there and keep growing. So they will tolerate almost anything except, you know, 10-degree weather. But um, they're going to survive whether you give them any help or not. They're going to survive better if you give them a good thorough watering every week or two. Oh, okay. Well, that was it then. Thank you very much. Good questions, Renee. Thank you for the call. Goodbye. And we start with Terry. Good morning, Terry. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling, as always. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a gardenia bush that is turning yellow from the tips of the leaves and then turning brown, kind of a, like a, almost turning into a shiny rot. Okay. I'm wondering what that could be. In the, is your gardenia in the shade or in the sun? It's uh, in the corner of the house, so it gets afternoon sun and shade in the morning. That's but it does that, get afternoon sun. Unfortunately, that's the reverse of what you want. A gardenia wants morning sun and afternoon shade, and you're just getting some sunburn on there. Okay, good. It's been doing great. It's bloomed for years, but <laughs> I, I haven't noticed it. Also, um, I had someone come out to the house who just basically weed-whacked every living thing in the backyard, which is good because only a few things were wanted. But um, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> planting, I would like to plant a new tree, and I've been listening to your other uh, guests about it, you know, crepe myrtles because I want shade as well as color. Uh-huh. But I'm also looking for something that the birds could get some benefit from. Okay. And I'm wondering... Is there anything that you'd recommend that would be shade, pretty color, and birds? <laughs> um, crepe myrtle. The crepe myrtle. They eat the crepe myrtle. The uh, seeds are actually a very winter time, a very important winter time food source for them. Right. Um, outside of some fruit trees, I mean, if you wanted to, 
you know, really help out some of the fruit eaters. You could plant a fig tree or other things, but most people that plant fruit trees want most of it for themselves. But as far as helping uh, the native bird populations, crepe myrtles are great, and it's the reason that I do not recommend deadheading the crepe myrtles at the end of the summer because those seed heads that form are a very good food source for our native birds. Great. Good to know. Also, um, I have... um I had a flea problem. I don't now because it's so dry. But right. I had a cat, also the mosquito problem. My gosh, my cat was a, was a magnet for mosquitoes for uh-huh. his nose and for his ears, even making him bloody. Right. So many bites. Is it, um, I actually put um, old household like Wesson oil, little drops, just a little teaspoon of Wesson oil, where I found standing water to prevent the uh, mosquito larva from. Mm-hmm being able to grow and is there anything more nat- anything uh natural that you'd recommend i uh, use from- if if it's a place where water stands for an extended period of time like in my case i have a cattle water trough out behind my barn i use the bti the uh natural it? bacteria uh, bacillus thuringiensis raliensis sold as either mosquito bits or mosquito dunks and if you right. have a place that you have that, that just always has water. Now, like my dog's buckets and things like that, I just dump those about every right. three days and give them fresh water. But um, uh, the if you're wanting something that you can just put a drop of into the water that kills mosquito larvae instantly, I use orange oil. Um, orange oil, and, you know, it's literally a drop of it is plenty in a, most water containers in a bird bath, things like that, will not bother the birds, and uh, yet it is absolutely deadly to mosquito larvae. And, of course, mm-hmm. orange oil has so many other good issues. Um, other oils, uh, mineral oil, anything like that, they suffocate the mosquito larvae by right. just putting that barrier on top of the soil. The orange oil, the its solvent quality is much, much faster, and in my opinion, much more effective at killing mm-hmm. the mosquito larvae. Well, thanks, because I worried about that being too dangerous for the birds, you no. know, in a bird bath. But you're talking like a drop. Like a drop in a big I bird think. bath. And also, when you say knuckle, do you mean two digits? <laughs> when you say knuckle deep, when you say the soil, make sure um, soil. One, uh, one, one digit, uh, well, or one joint, shall we say. <laughs> okay, a digit actually is yeah, the whole figure. That's what I'm thinking. But, uh, yeah. yeah, about an inch okay. or so. And yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why I want to be sure I understood that when you say knuckle deep, sure. it's, maybe it's the first digit or the first knuckle, which would be two digits on your fingers. So. Well, actually, Join your it. finger, your entire finger is a digit. You have five digits on your hand. Is True. At least right. that's my right. own, my my yeah. anatomical remembrance. One <laughs> other thing, because I just, it's a very common question, and I hate to see kitty cats bothered by mosquitoes. Uh, Ask your veterinarian. I know Dr. Kirby talks about sometimes uh, getting a little bit of a a product called Ovitrol that you can just smear a little on your fingers and just rub your kitty's ears with it. And uh, it seems to be a pretty good mosquito repellent. And, yeah, uh, I, I actually put petroleum jelly on it, and mm-hmm. that worked a lot, too. Plus, it helps their coats, and it doesn't hurt them if they sure. eat it. Well, I tried coconut oil. That didn't work, you know, but anything natural to keep the barrier between the mosquito no. bite and the skin. But thank you. Ovitrol, O-V-I-T-R-O-L? Yeah, uh-huh. And okay, that's well, just, if, if you're having trouble with it, <laughs> you sound like you'd be a good candidate. We got a bunch of little humorous signs 
uh, we purchased at the big gift market in Atlanta that came in this week. You probably would appreciate the one that's a definition. It says uh, home is where the cat hair sticks to everything except the cat. <laughs> Actually, my dog is shedding like there's no tomorrow right oh, now. Oh, man, my lab, I, I you oh, know, wow. got enough hair out to make a full litter of puppies. Uh, oh, God, isn't that the truth, man? Well, listen, thank you so much. And it, this is not a good time to plant anything, really. It's just too darn dry, right? Well, um, it's it's longer to water. When you're planting things from containers, you're not disturbing the roots in any way. And you can plant shrubs and trees and flowers, but you just have to be present to water. It's, it's really not a bad time, but uh, it is a time that they do take a little bit more attention to be sure that they don't dry out too badly. And would just plain uh, wood bark be something to put underneath plants, underneath the, the uh, uh, on top of the roots of plants for, or would you put compost then bark on I'd, top of I'd them mix to them. hold the water in? I'd mix them because compost is a little more expensive. I'd mix about one part compost to six or eight parts of bark, and that would give you what we call a living mulch, and that will be great for cooling the soil, reducing evaporation, suppressing weed growth. Uh, that that makes what we call a living mulch, and I think that's the best of both worlds. Great. Also, in New Mexico, where I lived, my uh, boss had some horses, and she had goat heads everywhere. She asked us all for any cardboard that we had, sure. and she put cardboard down and suffocated them, just like the method of solar, what is it, solar burning them off, and that worked for her, too, for large amounts of space. Right. Unfortunately, it, it, it tends to suppress the good grasses and things True. as well, but yeah, cardboard yeah. is just fine, but if you've got horses, they're going to eat everything down to soil level anyway, but... Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, is mulching with cardboard is fine. Uh, uh, I I like some of the other mulches better because cardboard is cardboard is just a physical a, barrier. Your right. compost is full of things like fulvic and humic acids that serve as a natural pre-emergent that give you several other modes of control. But yeah, for somebody just trying to in effect solarize an area without using the plastic, uh, multiple layers of cardboard are excellent. Right. Well, thank you, sir, as always. You're so helpful. God bless you for what you do. Well, it is my pleasure. Take care of your kitty, Terry, and your puppy dogs as well, and we'll talk again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. Next up is going to be uh, Cindy. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, I I am out in Abilene, Texas. I was in Bernie for 15 years, and now I've been joining you in Howard every Saturday and Sunday morning. Well, I appreciate that. My business partner's brother lives in Abilene, so you got some good neighbors out there. Very good. Um, My question is um, about compost. You know, we have super hard clay soil out here, and I need a lot of compost in bulk. Uh My only access to bulk compost out here is the cotton burr compost. Right. And they say they get it out of the panhandle, but I'm super concerned about herbicides and pesticides because I know cotton is so heavily sprayed. What is your opinion on on cotton burr? The bad news is that Cotton is fairly heavily sprayed. It is rare that there is enough herbicide left in it to cause problems. But years ago, gentlemen I worked with, uh, we killed several hundred roses mixing cotton burr compost into our soils when it did still have a lot of the defoliating chemical on it. The good news, if there is any, is that the chemicals that they use on cotton are biodegradable. It's not like the picloram that is sprayed on uh, hay and things like that. It just never goes away. 
cottonburr compost uh, is the, the material that is on there does break down over time. You can speed up the breakdown of both the cotton burrs and the chemicals on them, spraying periodically with molasses and uh, stimulants like that. So it's not perfect, but I think it's still far better than biosolids. And, uh, um, of course, you can do a lot to soften and loosen the soil just using straight molasses will work well. But if you need compost, if cotton burr compost is available to you, at a reasonable price. I'm not totally opposed to that. You might ask your city uh, brush dump if they have one in Abilene. Uh, that's another thing. The mulch is not, you know, it's not as far, not as far decomposed as compost, but uh, it can be used in a very similar fashion. It just takes longer to break down. And many cities, like where I live in Kendall County, they basically give it away because they generate so much of it. Okay, they are doing that here, I know. So um, my other question, you know, I, I wanted to put some in the vegetable garden, and I'm concerned about the organic with the cotton burr, but sure. I also want to need to put some on my soil. I've put, I, you know, we have a good HEB and a couple of local nurseries that I have access to all of the has to grow the Medina products and uh-huh. the farm products. Would hydrogen peroxide, I know Howard says hydrogen peroxide softens the soil, but would that be the same thing as? with soil activator no not at all hydrogen peroxide does what we call flocculating the soil works best in clay soils but it is a very very temporary effect it's you know frequently used when plants are first set out but uh things like your soil activator things like your molasses produce a much more long-lasting result if not so instantaneously hydrogen peroxide is great stuff but uh, use it for soil softening um a lot of money and a waste of time Okay, so dry molasses, soil activator, compost on the grass, and then on the garden area, you think the cotton burr? Dry dry or liquid molasses, either one. Yeah, all those are the way I would go. Okay, perfect. Okay, great. Thank you so much for the help. Thanks for listening, Cindy. Appreciate it. All right. Hey, remember the uh, Sister Day of Volunteer Fire Department barbecue and dance tonight? Barbecue starts about uh, 5, dance starts at 9, good music, and... uh, uh, all sorts of fun things in between times. Also, next Friday, we're doing the Conservation Easement Workshop out at the Cibolo Nature Center. You can call out there to get more information or Google CibeloConservancy.org. You get the number and everything to call there for complete information on that. Those are just two of the events coming up this week. Right now, we're going to talk to Beverly and then Shirley, and Beverly is first. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How about you? Oh, very good. What I was calling you about, in our yard we have, like, brown spots okay. and, like, the, like the grass dies in one area, and then further over it's starting to get brown spots all over the how, how yard. Big, how big are these brown patches? Oh, maybe about maybe three feet. Okay. I mean, it's a keep going. <laughs> but, okay. like, like it, maybe they start off with just a small spot, patch, and then, then it gets larger, and it seems like the grass dies, and I even kind of pull it up. The other day I got a can. I thought, well, let's see if it's cinch bugs. And I put the can there, and I put water, and I didn't see any bugs come up, so I don't think it's cinch bugs. Well, there there are a couple of possibilities. Uh, cinch bugs are not real common, and we just, you know, usually when we have grubworm damage, it's much more irregular pattern. Um if it were smaller areas, especially in your front yard, I'd tell you it's probably the result of uh, 
neighborhood dogs coming by. But the 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 most common reason we are seeing dead brown patches in grass right now uh, is a water issue. And two things happen in our San Antonio soils. Uh, we tend to have sometimes what we call a dome of caliche or sometimes just rock. We'll have areas where it's much closer to the surface. The soil is much thinner. And when we get into this 110 degree, you know, soil or heat index deal, the soil just dries so much more quickly in the more shallow soil areas. And we start seeing dead patches of grass. Uh, The other thing sometimes is just the sprinkler system is not um, effectively watering the whole area evenly. Things that I would do, you don't want to use fresh compost, but if you get a bag or two of fully mature compost, if you will spread that over these areas, lava sand tends to hold moisture, actually attract moisture from the air, a thin layer of that spread over these areas. I don't think it's insect or diseases. I just, I think it's related to water or the lack of, related to the temperature related to the fact that the soil is probably just much thinner in some areas on your yard. Anything you can do to try to overcome that, anything you do to get those areas a little bit more water, uh, you should stop it. And the grass should spread back into those areas whenever we get around to cooling off this fall. Well, it's funny. The front yard have no problem. Grass is just beautiful, but it's the backyard. And I did nematodes maybe about three weeks ago, and I did put some Medina uh, fertilizer, uh-huh. and um, and it don't seem, you know, I still see, it seemed like the spots is just, you know, coming in different areas. And well, so, what about cornmeal, no? I don't think it's a fungus. I mean, it wouldn't hurt anything, but I, I and if it's a fungus, cornmeal would take care of it, but fung, fungi are kind of uncommon um, when it is as, as, you know, as hot as it is right now. Oh, yeah. Now, again, the, it is so hot, the grass is just not growing much. So I, even with good treatment, I wouldn't expect the grass to really start spreading back into these areas very quickly. But uh, you certainly haven't heard anything. You Long-term, you have made things much better, but I don't think we're going to see a lot of change until we get to a little bit cooler fall weather. Okay, where can I get the lava sand from? Um, any good nursery, places like Stone and Soil Depot will have it, but uh, uh, just about any good nursery should have it. Shade the Green? What, uh, what oh, absolutely. Have it? They're quite awesome. <laughs> absolutely. We have a good supply of it. That's where I get oh. mine. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, and let's see. Um, one, one last question. If I was going to plant pears, what kind is the best, and do you have to have two? You have to have two, and you want uh, you don't want a soft pear. They're very disease prone here. Probably the two best varieties for you to choose are kefir, K E I F F E R, and Orient, O R I E N T. Okay, okay. Well, that sounds great, and probably uh, plant those probably when it gets a little bit cooler. Probably that's what I would do. You'll find much better selection, and uh, there that pear trees can live a hundred years. They're one of your best fruit trees for this area. So. Beverly, I thank you for the call. Let me get Shirley in here. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, we just got back from a family reunion in Montana at my niece's ranch. Lucky uh, you. <laughs> well, I'm from Montana originally. Okay. So my families are all ranchers. But anyway, we had a terrible fly problem. Of course, they raise cattle, mm-hmm. and the corrals are not very far. 
and all we got some hanging things, you know. We the trouble with that is we don't want to poison any animals or sure. anything. But sure. and she's trying to be a little bit more organic uh, there at the ranch. But I'm wondering. I know diatomaceous earth. If in the in any of the corrals and stuff that wouldn't hurt their horses or wouldn't, cattle or anything. Wouldn't hurt. In fact, it'd be, it'd be good for the horses and cattle if they ate. But research fly parasites. Uh, there are some natural things where you have an abundance of manure. There are some natural parasites that will not hurt uh, cattle or horses that are very, very effective against flies. If you have a given area that you want to spray, Spinosad, S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D, is a natural insecticide uh, that is one of the best fly killers I have ever seen. Um, You may have to get it here and send it. That's one thing about Montana. It's hard to find anybody that has much in organic products up there. But Spinosad for a spray, fly parasites as a general year-round things, those are going to be your best way to limit fly problems. And it'll also get some of the flies that may be bad for the cattle, the heel flies, horn flies, things like that. Um, and it, won't, it won't hurt any animal. Okay, no. is it the same spinosad that I have got from you here that I do yes, in my ma'am. yard and garden? Yes, it is. And But you can get it in a large enough container to do maybe the... I would stuff, have huh? to look around. I'm sure you can. But uh, yes, it would be the same thing. Okay, now, do is there anything that you can hang around the house area that would kill flies? I no, know my uncle no. years ago made his own at, at yeah. one no, ranch. Unfortunately, that, that's all going to be toxic. 